0: Disenfranchised from everything
1: Oh, well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the
0: day I was born hey there, friends, welcome back
2: to the bunker. Okay, we're down in the bunker. We're in the basement. Something's going on upstairs <laughs> here Bells, at the Bellworks. Works. beast. Indeed, indeed. We are downstairs in, um, this is kind of the room at the Bellworks here. For those who are not familiar with it, it's a very strange building. This looks like where Cobra Commander would be meeting with um, his underlings to plan the next attack on the G.I. Joes. If they were
0: making a new G.I. Joe movie, this would be like the place that like the kids would uncover and be like, what was this place? But they see like Cobra Command signs everywhere in the dark. (laughs) They flip the switch and they're like, oh, fuck, we shouldn't have done that. Kahuna's writing his origin story already, folks. (laughs) He's got some stuff figured out.
2: I'm KP Burke. You guys know the deal. I'm a New Jersey-based comedian. I'm uh, (laughs) Uh someday I won't be. We'll see what happens. I don't know. I think I'm just branded this way forever. But that being said, with me as always, my Delph of a dad, Lawrence Patrick. Say hello, sir. Hey, folks.
1: How are we all doing today?
2: We're here greeting you guys from a... Uh, first of all, and by the way, kudos, of course, as always. We are grateful for uh, Ming Chen for everything that he does here for us. Um, the kahuna stepped up yet again today. The kahuna arrived, saw that the studio is was in, uh, uh, ill-conditioned for uh, <laughs> us to record here. And he decided to spring into action and go full aloha, which means hello and goodbye, as he brought us downstairs into the nuclear fallout shelter of the Bellworks to record this very episode. Oh, that's
0: two levels down, man. We're, we're, <laughs> we're in Cobra Command's <laughs> space, remember? Keep it consistent.
2: You idiots. <laughs> Life is good, man. Kahuna, how are you doing, buddy? Behind the ones and twos, as always, folks. You know him.
0: I'm good, man. Things are good. Freaking, uh, I'm... Losing some weight, I am down ten pounds.
2: He looks good, folks. He looks good. So yeah, I'm listen, feeling good. If you are uh, if you are a female listener who is single, okay, uh, hit we will me send up. What's good? Exams. If you are a gentleman uh, looking for <laughs> some sort of a rendezvous, never to be spoken of again, but you would say we could, We'll always have Home Dell. Um,
1: Kahuna is an equal opportunity. There you go. <laughs> that velvety smooth dark chocolate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to American Loser Radio.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: well, we put the spotlight firmly. Super
2: sounds of the 70s. Um,
0: <laughs> firmly on second place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that is what we're going to do here today. And today, the entire episode, this is actually one of our more ambitious episodes, wouldn't you say, uh, Lawrence Patrick? Yeah,
1: this was a, this was a good one and a good meld of uh, opposing viewpoints, if you would. Yeah, we don't want to only cover
2: um, black history during the month of February. I think that there's too many good stories to have a just also the shortest month of the year. Uh, should not be, you know, the, the, there's too many stories to fit in just that one tiny month. So we're going to tell an interesting story. It's not black history per se, Kahuna. We are going to attack this um, myth, if you will. Now, there is a myth. You're familiar with the idea of uh, having a um, overcorrection? Uh, yeah. This is two chronic overcorrections back to back that kind of make this uh, this whole thing a little uncomfortable. You can see where the, the impact of the, the cultural movements on both of these things are kind of still prevalent today. Um, and we're going to mention stuff to you that's absolutely based in our pop culture. Whoa. However, comma, we have to juxtapose them against one another in order to better determine the story here. So you'll figure out where we're going pretty quickly here, folks. But history matters. If you don't know it, you are doomed to repeat it. But the worst thing is when you think you know it and you miss out on a couple of huge details that alter your own perception. This can be from your own ignorance, uh, lack of information, poor sources, unlike this show where we do all of our research before we open up. <laughs> We've right. been wrong on occasion. We've missed a couple of things, but don't worry. There's always that one, you know, usually our great listeners, especially the founding losers, they do like to keep us honest on stuff, which we appreciate too.
0: That is the dope part of the show. It, like when, really if, we, we do, if we do make a mistake, we usually correct it in the following episode.
2: Oh, well, we try to. We always try to be honest. If we miss something and it's bad, we'll address it. If not, we're just like, yeah, that wasn't part of it. So I remember we did an episode on Melvin Purvis and there was a guy that was furious that we didn't cover the torso murders. And I was like, hey... I know that you wanted more for the money you didn't spend on this free show,
1: <laughs> right. but I'm very sorry we missed that. Sometimes you get what you pay for. Exactly. And now, you if didn't you're, pay for if any you're of a hero,
2: If you're a hero, like a lot of our heroes, okay, we have we have a good number over at the Founding Losers, man. We really do. we got people that support and love the show. For as little as $3 a month, you can help support this thing because, again, we, we're trying to keep it rolling out on the regular here. It's very difficult with scheduling. It's very difficult with a lot of other stuff and uh, two other new projects that are kicking off. But we are going to get right into the nitty-gritty of this one because we want to give you people what you deserve, okay? And you people meaning the founding losers and the people who support this show in any capacity. Even just listening is actually very helpful. So it'd be better if you didn't leave us a bad review if we left out a detail you didn't like. I mean, message me instead. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. So Uh, anyhow, here we go, folks. So as we often say here on the show, if one side sees it one way, and the other side sees it totally the opposite way, the truth is probably where, Kahuna?
0: Just somewhere slightly in the middle. Exactly.
2: (laughs) So in an effort to tackle this long, sticky subject known as the lost cause when it comes to the American Civil War and the Reconstruction era, we decided to show the time period and ideology surrounding it by juxtaposing, that's another good word here that we learned from Kevin Smith's clerks, um, we will juxtapose the views of the American Confederacy based off the reported uh, histories of two central figures from its own history, that being Nathan Bedford Forrest and Margaret Mitchell. So off the top of your head, Kahuna, there's no wrong answers. You're, we, we spring these things on you here. You're a technical wizard. We bring you on the show for your looks.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> your I have a very great I-can- face for I-can. radio. Uh,
2: this guy, <laughs> he's putting himself down. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest and Margaret Mitchell. Either yeah. name jumping out at you?
0: Not immediately.
2: Okay. You're going to... They've been alluded to, or there are things that they did are uh, permanently etched into American pop culture. You'll see why in a couple of minutes. Okay. I think you'll dig it over here. So, and then Lawrence Patrick, you and I have been wanting to do this episode, and we, we're going to do this as two separate topics. And we kind of decided that it'd be a fun exercise yeah, to them together. play was them a off good each other. Yep. I think so. Every yeah. now and then we are okay here.
0: Yeah.
2: So, on the one hand, folks, you have Margaret Mitchell. Still nothing? Kuna? Nothing from Margaret Mitchell? a southern woman from Georgia who would go on to write a worldwide famous novel about characters and experiences she would mold from the stories that she heard herself as a young girl. Coming from a well-off family that made a good portion of its money from owning slaves in a plantation, Margaret would spend much of her time with her grandmother who would tell her stories surrounding the Civil War, the events surrounding the Civil War, and uh, older Confederate veterans would regale her with stories of their heroism, dreams of what could have been, had the cause of the South been victorious, and the chaos and destu- uh, destruction that was wrought upon the South by the federal government during the, quote, War of Northern Aggression, okay? Also known as the Civil War. Exactly. There's still parts <laughs> of the South that would refer to it as the War of Northern Aggression, those damn Yankees, everything. And, right. And by the way, don't get me wrong, we're going to paint the picture right here in the middle, which is where it's supposed to be, which is, hey, uh, this is bullshit and this is bullshit. Somewhere in the middle, everybody's a little bit right. Or, as we like to say, equally fucked. So anyhow, uh, that's the war of Northern aggression kind of a perspective here, which is interesting too, because Margaret, who was born in 1900 in Atlanta, okay, we're talking about a good 40 years after the Civil War is over. uh, I did not realize, I always appreciated it, but I didn't truly um, understand that the entire country almost didn't make it. Like the Civil War almost broke us apart. Reconstruction is possibly the most integral part of this american experiment that we were able to keep the country together right. following it, it, it is mind-blowing to sit there and be like hey you know you guys were shooting at each other maybe 30 minutes ago uh give peace a
1: chance you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it almost came to the point where if you wanted to go from new york to florida you'd have to have a passport to go into another country because uh you know if wouldn't things, that have been crazy if things had gone a different way uh, that would have been a very distinct possibility There's a, it's a a strange what if scenario
2: to put yourself through. There was actually a very funny documentary too, where it was, um, what if the South had won and it was, uh, detailing that Harriet Tubman had to smuggle Abraham Lincoln out throughout the Underground Railroad to get him up to Canada. (laughs) And then there was a, uh, an insurance, uh, company thing where it was, uh, you know, like a guy, a Southern guy sitting on his porch, drinking lemonade, nervous about his, uh, you know, property insurance. And part of his property insurance was the family of black slaves that he owned. (laughs) You're like, yeah, this is this is how dark it could have gotten, man. So
0: documentary.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, pseudo. (laughs) What if the North had won? Very funny take on it. I think that was probably a pre Onion type of uh, effort. Okay. Had the Onion been around, they would have produced that and put it out under their uh, umbrella. But anyhow, again, Margaret Mitchell, who was born in 1900, you still haven't figured out what she wrote,
0: Kona? The, na- the name sounds so familiar, dude. I'm like, and I know it'll be. A now, here's the thing is it coming from a, a movie?
2: <laughs> oh, Kahuna. Getting warmer. Kahuna's, he's got some, <laughs> he's about to figure it out here, folks. Um, now, Margaret Mitchell, again, born 1900 in Atlanta, spent her entire childhood hearing about the courageous Robert E. Lee. Now, when you're told something, Kahuna, if you're a kid and you grow up, and this is what's being said to it by the people that, are kind to you, help teach you things, help take care of you. Um,
1: yeah. th- All should- the adults
2: surrounding you in your life. Oh, yeah. are and, and there's no internet to hop on. There's no, uh, you're not going to go study abroad. up <laughs> you, in. Uh, you take
0: it as gospel.
2: Essentially, yeah. And uh, what winds up happening here is that in her family and her upbringing, Robert E. Lee is referred to as a, a hero nonstop, the same way we would talk about, say, George Washington, or on this podcast, Teddy. Motherfucking. Roosevelt. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um
0: just like how in my family we believe we know Santa Claus is real, not this none of this made up bullshit.
2: It's true. Uh, uh, Santa is actually Kimbo Slice. That's a- <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, continue. Now, Robert E. Lee,
2: by the way, who up until he decides to, and he's got that great quote too, where he, he talks about he doesn't want to go against the United States because obviously he was, uh, you know, the the head of the United States Military Academy up at West Point. Robert E. Lee was a pretty remarkable figure in American history. He was handed the command of the entire Army of the Potomac if he wanted it. And he said he just couldn't go against Virginia because Virginia had joined up with the South. So he didn't want to be killing people that he grew up with, his fellow countrymen, if you will. Because back in this day, uh, and specifically that time frame, uh, the colonies were more like city-states then you know, the states now were like, oh, yeah, well, I'm from Florida, but originally I'm from here. No, people lived and died within... Like six of miles time. of each other. Exactly. It was very strange to, to live. And in fact, the Civil War is actually the first time that uh, uh, you know Union troops, if you will, would come back and be like, oh, yeah, I was uh, this is a beautiful place. I'd love to come back down to Tybee Island with my family. You know what I mean? So that's where you started seeing the uh, uh, carpetbaggers and then the Yankees coming on down and all that other stuff. But interestingly enough... Robert E. Lee is held in very, very high regard uh, by a lot of people still to this day, and there's plenty of things to admire about him. Unfortunately, he was on the wrong side of this uh, argument here, and at at its core, the argument was based on uh, you want to say states' rights. Say the full sentence: states' rights to own other people. That's that's how you solve that one. Okay, it's not yeah. Not a difficult thing here to say, and again, we've said it on here before. At first, Kahuna did not agree with us; he was very much against it. But through time, uh, I right, believe we've,
1: we've swayed. Don't he's, you, he's
0: Don't lean into this <laughs> bit.
2: Kahuna has come. I'm to just agree sitting with there,
0: us. like I'm like he's not going to do it, and I'm like, oh, he did.
2: Kahuna has come to agree with us here on this show that our viewpoint is that people shouldn't own people, and uh, Kahuna. Uh, uh, it took
0: a us screaming. a while to
1: bring the boy around to that line. <laughs> was, it
0: was a very stubborn mindset, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm v- I apologize greatly. <laughs> yeah. If we told people you
2: were Samoan, though, we could convince them. Like, like listen, <laughs> he had slaves, but he ate them. It's- <laughs> 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 Don't make me laugh. The echo's too bad. <laughs> uh. Oh shit! Uh, Yeah, uh,
1: I was just going to say by 1900. I mean, Margaret was born in 1900 in Atlanta. A one nine, not a one eight, at the
2: start of that birth. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Um, Robert E. Lee has already died. He died in 1870. So from the close of the Civil War um, to now 1900, he his image or his portrayal is almost you know akin to sainthood to the close. to the, now, and now he's the now guy this her, so this was her so this
0: was heard Jim Henson <laughs> <laughs> it's there.
2: I, that's interesting that's actually interesting to say
0: cuz i mean well think of it like this it's the figure that you hear all your life about and then you, you never knew but then you get po- you hear the positive portrayals from at least this one side cuz i'm assuming no one told her like well there was this one thing that he did you know well, Robert Ely is a pretty
2: great guy uh Stonewall Jackson, a lot of admirable qualities too. Again, they're, they're on the wrong side of this issue. What led them to, because we can see everything in hindsight, what led them to choose the side that they wound up staying with, which obviously being the Confederacy, um, that, that's the great what-if question ever of all time. Um, these guys were from the South and then the federal government is saying we're at war with the South and they didn't want to go against that. So I, I totally understand that part here. The thing that you were kind of mentioning though, Dad, is that Robert E. Lee, until he has said, I cannot, what was it? I, I cannot go against Virginia or whatever the great right. quote was that he had. Right. Up until then, he is a beloved figure in American history because the guy has lineage, his his roots, if you will. His father fought in the American Revolution with Washington. He himself, Robert E. Lee, was a hero of the Mexican-American War. He was considered one of America's greatest military minds. And uh, the idea of him being a traitor was something that young Margaret would never hear from any of her childhood influences. So- uh, I mean, Margaret, she didn't even know that the Confederacy had been defeated until she was 10 years old. Imagine knowing about the Civil War for quite a period of time and then not knowing how it ended. Right. You're like, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll give this... The Civil War idea. is
1: over for, what, 55 years, mm-hmm. and when she's finally discovering as a 10-year-old that, wait a minute, the South lost?
2: was <laughs> that possible? It's a strange time. <laughs> strange...
1: So I would put it this
2: way, Kahuna. Imagine if... Um, Imagine if you were told that the first Star Wars was the only Star Wars, right? Third, I'd be happy. A new hope, right? And then you say, oh, they made a second one. And it just ends on the second one. And there is so it's Empire Strikes Back.
0: Oh, so the better example here is Ghostbusters. Luke loses you get Ghostbusters name. 1, then Ghostbusters 2. All right, where's the third one? I got to wait, how many years?
2: <laughs> Not even that one. Just imagine finding out that it ends on a down note, like uh, I was trying to say with uh, Empire, is that... Robert E. Lee, this hero, you find, oh, he lost. He actually surrendered at Appomattox. You're like, oh, well, what happened to everybody else? You're like, oh, okay, so we're going to – you're getting the unabridged version of the story here now. So, But interestingly enough, is it based off the stories and the personalities that were informing her opinion on this, uh, Margaret was led to believe parts of the idea that prior to the federal troops invading the South, the South was almost Camelot adjacent. So Camelot being instead of the castles, you had plantations. The men were instead of knights, they were worldly southern gentlemen and the women who were not uh, damsels in distress, but they were socialite southern bells. That's kind of the imagery that's being conjured up over here. And we're going to get into all of that as well. But by using pre-war antebellum South as the setting for a story of chaos, love, loss, and violence, it gave a sense to readers of a lost kingdom type of history and certainly paints the Union troops in an unfavorable light while they burn Atlanta to the ground and seemingly all that was beautiful about the southern way of life. So. Yeah, the
1: Atlanta that she grew up in.
2: Exactly. So now it may yeah, and, come and as I, a shock. I'm
1: just going to throw it in there, too, that, you know, um, typically we hear that the, the winners are the ones who write the history books. Mm-hmm. But as a young girl growing up in Atlanta, um, the history books were let's say slanted in a little different view it wasn't 1000%. Yeah, it wasn't the uh, the northern history books that were that she was reading it was the southern version of history, history rewards that. the
0: victors by letting them write the history books.
1: Right. Well, it would be that in this case what it was
2: was it was a um almost a allowance if you will for lack of a better term an allowance by the northern states or the union if you will saying like Hey, listen. So we'll give them this little thing. We're giving them this uh, this carrot, if you will, because it gets them moving along towards the idea of uniting as a country again. They're just they're they're from the South. They're they're Americans again, but they're from the South. Let them have this part of their their quote culture or their history. So, and then unfortunately, it's not the people that you're almost seeing a public relations propaganda type thing that shows up here about the idea of the lost cause, like that. I'll let you get into it in a second here, Um, but the lost cause is fascinating because they kind of painted themselves in, like, well, we knew we couldn't beat the industrial North, but we had to get out there and and face them down and stuff like that and defend our homes and everything. They really painted in a very sympathetic light. And that's not exactly what they were all being told at the beginning. They thought that they were going to just whoop some uh, you know, Yankee ass and this, this war could be over within a year and then we'll have our own country. They thought they were just going to have the Southern United States of America right. is really what it was going to be. To the point where the Confederate government was actually speaking to and having you know meetings with uh, you know royalty and elected officials from other countries like the UK, France, Germany. I mean, there was a lot to be thought of here, especially Spain. That, that's where almost, it's very funny in American history. You can see who they're fighting with at the moment and then who they're getting ready to fight next. And in this particular incident um, with the Civil War, obviously the next big fight we're going to have is going to be with Spain. And Spain being very interested because... The Southern Colonies, all near Florida, which was, you know, at right. one time a Spanish territory, as was New Orleans and Louisiana and everything like that. So, it's and the really, whole Southwest. Oh yeah, it's it, the whole world is one giant game of risk, is really what it is. <laughs> right. So that's right. But uh, the, here's the the thing, folks, is that it might come as a shock to you, but it wasn't quite all peaches and cream down south. So for this episode, we are going it to wasn't? juxtapose <laughs> the virtuous, idealistic view of the South and the lost cause mythology slash retcon slash redemption effort against the awful war crimes and honest-to-God domestic terrorism of one Nathan Bedford Forrest. The reason being is that Nathan Bedford Forrest is and was a beneficiary of the Lost Cause mythology, and Margaret Mitchell's seminal work, Gone with the Wind.
0: Son of a bitch! (laughs) (laughs) There's the
2: draw drop for this episode. Her, did, have you seen Gone with the Wind? Cougar? I have. Okay, so that, once
0: actually, because I was, was like that was a long ass movie.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's my grandmother's favorite movie of all time, Sandy Burke's mother. Um it was the highest
0: grossing movie of all time for yes, it was. a long time. Yes, it's
1: still, it, I mean, if it's adjusted, adjusted for, for inflation, inflation, it's still the, the It's
0: in the high billions. Yeah.
2: I want to say that came out the same year as Wizard of Oz from the same studio. I might be right on that. I believe the I three, think it's the same
0: director, but I don't yeah. know if it's the same year. Victor Fleming
2: Google Good. that. Find out because um, I do know that the three biggest movies of that era were um, *Lose Reception Time*, folks. Um, *The Wizard of Oz*. Uh, obviously, *Gone with the Wind*, and then in addition to that would be same year. Orson You're right. Orson Welles' *Citizen Kane*.
0: Holy crap! I'm Wait, pretty really? Sure
2: on that one, and that's RKO um, Productions.
0: *Citizen Kane*, 1941.
1: A uh-huh. Couple of years later. But
0: yeah, *Wizard of Oz*, Victor Fleming. Gone with the Wind, Victor Fleming. He did both of them. He That's did both insane. of them. Oh, Pro- shit. That'd probably be around the same time, too.
2: I think they would have been. That that wouldn't shock me on that one. So we're going to jump into this one here. We're going to use Nathan Bedford Forrest and his real-life deeds and actions as told by the people that knew him uh, versus uh, Margaret Mitchell's creation of this Camelot-like version of the South. That, and, and by the way, we were talking about this earlier on the way over here. The Southern... Lost cause mythology, it all holds up until you bestow upon the slaves the idea of personhood. So in an ethics class, I took at Brookdale of all places. Um, we were discussing the concept of personhood. And this guy that was talking to me in the class was trying to give like a gerbil personhood. And he was like, oh, if the, if the gerbil has like a personality or something, like that, yeah, you're, what's the root word of personality, person? So are you saying a gerbil is as impactful of a life as a human being? The argument that comes up there with a uh, right to live, right to die, all that other stuff here too. The bottom line is this one. As soon as you give these um, uh, former slaves the right to vote, if you will, are we okay or should we? You okay? You're in pain? Yeah, no, I was like, my, my knee clipped the
0: table and I was just trying not to scream. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Don't Good scream, Good, brother. Um, so we're going to juxtapose those things over here. It, it's very you can see why the Southerners believed this idea that oh was a lost cause. We were doomed from the start. We should have done this. We were trying to stand up for ourselves against the federal government because the federal government came in and with William Tecumseh Sherman they burned everything to the ground. So it's very easy to paint them as the villains in this one here too. But you're also saying oh by the way they they ruined our way of life. What was your way of life? Well we used to own people. Oh <laughs> so everybody's wrong here. Yeah. Good. So. Anyway, but that's the reason being is that Nathan Bedford Forrest, he benefits very heavily from this Lost Cause mythology. There's people that try to make him akin to a folk hero. His childhood home is still preserved. You can go see it and visit it to this day. And there's a couple of things worth noting here. Uh, this Sympathetic Light, it's still very controversial to this day. One of my favorite bands ever is The Band with Levon Helm. And Robbie Robertson, who's Canadian, oddly enough, wrote the song The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, which still gets mentioned all the time. Ooh, that, that falls into the, the, the Lost Cause Sympathy for the South thing. And it's really only gets noticed because Levon Helm has the most Southern singing voice of all time because he was <laughs> yeah. from Arkansas. And his father used to tell, uh, you know, Levon Helm's father when the band would visit them, they would always say, hey, the South will rise again. Now, what does that mean? We're going to get back to where we used to be someday or we're, we're on the rise or we're coming back. Slavery's coming back. You don't know what it means. And depending on who you're talking to, it means all those things. Right. So- it,
1: it becomes a battle cry for a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different folks. Oh yeah,
2: that's uh, you know, again, it's not too long ago you could see uh, footage from Oakland, California, of Leonard Skinner playing with a giant Confederate flag in the background, and that just meant being from the South, and that's what they meant by. And then, unfortunately, neo Nazis and neo white nationalists and all that. They completely adopted that. And by the way, borrowed a lot of it from this lost cause mythology. These people, you don't know what these people are like. They were going through it, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, they also owned people. So tell the full story. That's all. Say the full sentence. The South will rise again and what? (laughs) But anyhow, uh, more important here is that as a young girl, there was a carriage ride that young Margaret Mitchell was on with her mother. Margaret would see open land in the South, open land as far as you can see Kahuna. And then every now and then there'd be a little tiny chimney or a stack of uh, uh, bricks or stone, if you will, and they—the nickname for them was Sherman Sentinels. Sherman Sentinels. So you're looking out, you see all this open land. There's nothing to be seen, and there's just a chimney out of nowhere. What do you think was there beforehand, Kahuna?
1: Oh, yeah, uh, it's <laughs> somebody's house. I was—I was, was trying
0: to put like just chimneys. I was like, oh, okay. Yep. They, Someone's log cabin went bye-bye. They well, burnt. more than a
1: log cabin. Yeah, log it was cabins, cabin whatever, right? Yeah.
2: But everything was burnt down, and all that would remain would be, oddly enough, the fireplace. So, um, But those things would be known as Sherman Sentinels, uh, or these leftover stone chimneys over here. That was remnants of William Tecumseh Sherman's march to the sea, where he enacted his scorched earth policy, which is total war, it's called, which is take this over. Uh, you know, burn everything in sight. Burn the crops. Destroy the rails. Destroy everything. Don't don't make sure they know they're in a fight. And you're bringing the fight to
1: the to citizens the people as well. Yeah, I mean, it's more than just the armies. That uh, well, who's who's supporting the army? Well, the people and uh, mm-hmm. the farms and everything else are supplying mun- munitions and f- food and everything else. Well, we're going to take the fight to the to the people, and that's where that scorched earth policy was. Uh, kind of put into play by, my, I think, around 1863 or so.
2: Well, that that's another reason why Reconstruction, my dumb mind as a kid was saying, oh, Reconstruction, that's when they were fixing everything that they broke during the Civil War. That's what I thought. I'm like, oh, no, Reconstruction is we're a country again. How do we bring on these people that were literally just carrying arms against the federal government? And again- How do
0: we normalize traitors?
2: <laughs> well, it, it's that too. It's, um, I mean, think about this one. If you want to play this one for a second, uh, the British defeat you know, the Continental Army and uh, we're all witness to, did they hang George Washington or do they realize that you're just going to piss him off and his supporters off and Thomas Jefferson's going to write some great, you know, second edition letter telling you to kiss his ass again. (laughs) Are are you going to, this happened, I'll tell you the perfect example of this one, Uh, the Easter uprising, 1916 in Ireland, right? Um, As the men who took over the post office in Dublin were being uh, escorted through the crowd, they were being pelted by their own citizens, by garbage, rocks, things being thrown. They were being called traitors and terrorists, and it wasn't until the British government executed them with no trial or mock trials, kangaroo courts, they actually had to – one guy was so wounded that he had to be sat down in a stool in order to be shot up against a wall. Right,
1: they had to- Prop them up in a chair exactly. so they could
2: shoot them. When you come down too hard on the traders, you, uh, in a sense, lionize them. So that's why you had to be very careful with this reconstruction effort here. And they were saying, oh, well, what are we going to do? We're going to give um, – we're going to tell the South that uh, all of the slaves now have the right to vote, but the landowners don't. That's going to be a weird balance of power. And there's no right way to do this. And we got truly – John Wilkes Booth, you want to – John Wilkes Booth wipes his ass with the American cause on so bad over here because – Lincoln would have been more sympathetic to the South and more orderly with the South than Andrew Johnson ever was. Andrew Johnson will go down in history. I I would say, I think it's easy to say he's the worst president we ever had. Worst man for the job. When you're locking yourself in your office so that you can't find out that you're being removed as president, um, (laughs) pretty much a bad look all around (laughs) folks. But to get back into Margaret Mitchell and what's going on over here, because we are talking about a big, very important topic. So that's why I want to make sure we're not, uh, you know, glossing over any details over here. But this, uh, during one such car- uh, carriage ride that Margaret Mitchell's on with her mother, Margaret recalls being told about the war and the world before it. Her mother warned her about um, what would happen. She goes, hey, this is a very safe world that we were living in. And I grew up in a very safe world. And then one day it exploded from underneath me literally the exact quote the world will explode underneath you one day and you best have a sword to wield when the new world comes knocking at your door so yeah
0: yeah it's pretty accurate
2: well I mean because if you are if you're telling this story to a young girl from a well-off family who everything was great and then this happened and nothing's been right ever since there's a little bit of a um, what was the the girl's name the Russian girl that escaped uh, Anastasia yeah There's a little bit of an Anastasia, Paradise Lost type thing going on here with that, which is ironic because that's going on the same time frame uh, in the 1900s here. But anyway, uh, combine that with the stories of old Confederate veterans and her experiences as a tomboy turned prom queen. This is a true story. Margaret Mitchell, uh, her mother made her wear uh, slacks or trousers like a boy would because when she was a young girl, her dress got caught on an iron grate and caught on fire. So her mother goes, all right, so... You're going to wear pants from now on. And then her nickname became Little Jimmy. So now imagine, you know, imagine you're a neighborhood boy and you see this kid who's playing with his little sister. But his little sister answers to Little Jimmy and she wears trousers like a boy. And like, oh, cool. She's just a tomboy. Then she grows up a little bit. And you're like, God damn, Little Jimmy's a hot chick. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good looking... That's a good-looking tomboy for sure. Oh, yeah. She went from uh, tomboy to prom queen pretty much in uh, Atlanta high society. She was a great dancer. She was very, uh, a very learned woman. She was very, very liberal too, by the way, in terms
0: of uh, – As a great scholar once said, did her milkshake bring all the boys to the yard?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, she had more suitors. That, I think that was a comment made that uh, she had more suitors, men that were drop-dead in love with her, than any other woman in all of Atlanta. So she was good-looking she definitely threw on her if you picture Vivian Lee's Scarlett O'Hara um, you can see there's a little bit taken right. from her on that like oh you know, uh, throwing around her southern accent her little um, debutante uh, skills and, and by the way she was also uh, she collected old school porn what? yeah she went to erotic bookstores when she was up in New York and stuff like that and her and her husband would collect she's old a super school she's super
0: free super free she was she's super yeah. free yeah.
2: it's those southern girls they uh, what was the name again? It's the truth, man. Some yeah. girls are... Uh, she had a little edge to her. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, what was her <laughs> name again?
2: Margaret Mitchell. Mar- Margaret? <laughs> Our girl
0: Margaret gone with the wind, Margaret. And we've been setting up this whole time? Damn. All right, Margaret. Good for you.
2: Well, she's, uh, like I said, uh, her life is very interesting. She winds up working as a reporter uh, because she displays this obvious intelligence. She's uh, got a curiosity that leads her towards a love book. She's working as a reporter. She's the belle of the 1920s Atlanta Bowl. And only truly sat down to write her masterpiece, which would become Gone with the Wind, after her husband begged her, Margaret, can you please just write a book instead of me having to carry all these books with us every time we travel anywhere? She'd bring that. Picture Belle from Beauty and the Beast. That's kind of what she was. So she's Belle. She's always lost in a book or something like that. She's uh, nerdy but very good looking. Everybody's all about her. And the husband goes, I'll buy you this typewriter. You just write your own book. And I guess she had hurt her ankle or something like that. Yeah, she
1: was in a car accident where she hurt her ankle. or She was kind of uh disabled for a while so there you are at home uh in the middle of covid right you got nothing else to do but (laughs) hang out and that's all right so i'm gonna finally sit down and write a book because i really can't get out and about so much so
2: yep when kevin smith
1: uh, got covid he wrote clerks three and mall rats
2: (laughs) two clerks three starring christian cordez whoever that might be
0: yeah who i don't know
2: well, uh, she swaps out her own reading for the typewriter, sits down, and over the next three years writes the novel that will change her life, change history, help create one of the most acclaimed motion pictures of all time in Gone with the Wind, where, whose story will revolve around Scarlett O'Hara, a plantation owner's daughter whose life gets turned upside down by the Civil War. Now, by the way, too, she was also an Irish Catholic, Margaret Mitchell, and they were not treated as well as they could be. They weren't accepted into the upper echelons of high society in the South as well, which is interesting because they're like, I don't understand. They won't treat us. The- we own slaves just like all the Protestants, right. Right? but we're not welcome because we're Catholics.
1: Yeah, yeah it it's was really a, a strange anti-Catholic sentiment for sure. But uh, it was interesting too because I, one side of the family was Protestant and the other side was Catholic. But she did yes. go to uh, some Catholic boarding schools and stuff to, uh, mm-hmm. to for her upbringing. But again, you're you're hearing the history uh, that might be a little slanted uh, one way or the other, and. So many things within Gone with the Wind, within the book Gone with the Wind, are taken from her own upbringing, upbringing, right? Um, I know in Gone with the Wind, during Reconstruction, Scarlett makes a lot of money on uh, uh, lumber mill kind of a thing. And that's really where Margaret's family made a lot of money post-Civil War was Mm -hmm. in the lumbering business. Because if you're burning Atlanta to the ground, what are you going to do um after the war is over you're gonna have to rebuild Rebuild. (laughs) what are you gonna need you're gonna need a lumber a shit ton of lumber so they made a lot a lot of money with that but uh and all the different stories that you heard which would be considered
2: war profiteering um if it was another country right but (laughs) yeah uh, no we're we're self-profiteering yeah now in her use of what we're gonna call local color to borrow a literary term because she's using local color Um, And local color meaning that, you know, that the pulling of uh, sights, sounds, and true experiences uh, native to whatever the place was, the place or time, to give it a sense of authenticity. So in order to do that, she took the stories, like you said, Dad, from stuff that she was told, impression that she was given of the times, and other writings by other authors that she admired. Because, Kahuna, how many times did, did your mom ever tell you to turn the TV off and go read a book? A lot. Okay. So let's say you turned off Spongebob Squarepants and started reading Mein Kampf. Would your mom still be happy? <laughs> he, you're about to say what, and you're right. <laughs> yeah, That was quite the job. It is. Now Now, hear me out on this one. Who we lives to- in
0: a pineapple under the sea? Spongebob Squarepants!
2: Jawohl. <laughs> uh, beer hall pooch, man.
0: <laughs> oh my
2: God. Uh, I don't want to say I just I call. love
0: the jump. I'm sorry. That was great. cuz
2: oh, cuz it, it's crazy. Think about this one. So, uh, So what was hers? Well, her jump, it's not necessarily anything that bad or that drastic, but what I'm just saying is that uh they encouraged her to read and when, unfortunately one of the things that she was reading was um, she would read an author by the name of Thomas Dixon who had written a very popular trilogy of novels, the first two um with titles that will tell you everything you need to know. Remember what we're always saying this here? Say the full sentence. Okay? Her first novel was – I'm sorry, the, the first novel written by this Thomas Dixon fellow that Margaret Mitchell discovered and really enjoyed and, and said – kind of painted the idea of this Camelot South for her that she then put her Gone with the Wind taking place within, her universe building, if you will. Uh, the first novel is called Leopard Spots. Okay. And? Oh, you want, do you want the full sentence? Yes, please. You sure, Kahuna? Yeah. Leopard Spots, a romance of the white man's burden.
0: I don't think I wanted the full sentence.
2: <laughs> but the second novel was different. The second novel was different. going back towards a uh, uh, Scotch-Irish type of uh, a feel here. And the second novel was called uh, The Klansman. And? Oh, I'm sorry. The Klansman. A romance of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: also, Birth of a Nation. Okay. Huh. <laughs>
1: really? Weird, Kahuna. Are you sure? You just popped out, out of your Did little... you read ahead, Kahuna?
0: Wait, are you
2: fucking serious? So, Kahuna, let me ask you this. Um, Now, the novels are very popular, and they tell the story of Reconstruction-era South that saw blacks as uh, downtrodden lesser-thens with a penchant for theft, rape, and violence. So who could stand up to the gangs of 'er ne'er-do-well, recently enfranchised black voters in these novels? Perhaps, perhaps, Kahuna, a secret brotherhood of superhero-like cloaked figures that are spring into action in the night to defend the what organization
0: right
2: with their white robes and their hoods. Oh my God. So that should open up the floodgates, as it is here. We don't like when
1: we hurt the Kahuna during these episodes. Yeah.
2: we never try to hurt him.
1: Yeah, and these white—I knights I was fucking are gonna,
0: joking.
1: Yeah, well, we're not. So. <laughs> uh, these white knights who are going to. Um, bring law and order back to the reconstructed South and get rid of these federal troops here and then but also to defend um, womanhood against these newly freed black voters who are going to be raping and pillaging our, our white women. Uh who are you gonna who are you gonna call?
0: Don't do that. Don't destroy <laughs> Ghostbusters like that. That's not fair. Well, you
1: know?
2: floodgates are now very much open here. The main <laughs> takeaway being from this is that the man named Thomas Dixon Jr., who wrote the novels that helped inspire Margaret Mitchell's view of the South, Antebellum South being pre-war South, right? Which, by the way, I'll be fully honest, uh, Antebellum South had uh, great fashion, great architecture. Uh, there's a lot of positive takeaways from that. Yeah, that was great. And and full sense. That's the whole thing. You say the full sense. Say talk, the full sense. Talk sentence. out of both parts of your mouth. Don't okay. be like, "Well, you know, the, the the food was really good down there, made by the slaves who prepared." Um, <laughs> yeah. No shit, the exactly. food was great. The, the fashion was really good. It was very difficult for the women to get in and out of their very tight dresses, but they had slaves to help them do it. Um, it's it's a difficult uh it's a difficult thing to to go through, but we are trying to tell the full story. So you have to tell the goods and the bads with it.
1: Yeah, and that whole romance of, uh, of uh, antebellum south, of uh, things were great and the plantations mm-hmm. or the castles. I mean, one of the most popular books of the pre-Civil War times was Ivanhoe. Uh, you know, the knights in shining armor, rescuing damsels in distress, and the defender of uh, uh, virtue. virtue and everything else that uh, uh, the civil, chivalrous knights... Uh, of the, of the round table. All of that was later factored into the, uh, the lost cause uh, mythology. Oh, oh yeah. A I mean, and mythology
2: a- is without a doubt too. And, and that is a, the, the worst part of the lost cause is actually the second time around, if you will. So you got the veterans trying to say, ah, well, we knew we didn't have a chance. Well, so they're kind of lying because it's uh, the, I forget what the uh, psychology term is, but it's, um they put up such resistance to the idea that, you know, they never had a shot, or whatever—that that, that they truly lost the war, or that their generals weren't good at the cause wasn't just that they went to this uh, this place where they had to reconfigure. It's a coping mechanism to sit there and be like, ah, oh, we never had a chance, mm-hmm. and then, unfortunately, that gets—it's re- not that generation; it's the next generation, the Margaret Mitchell generation. Like, well, they knew they never had a chance. They really fought a noble fight here, and they're like, oh, cool. All right, So there's some nobility to this, and then again, you're leaving out other parts. So. That being said, Thomas Dixon Jr. writes these novels that helps inspire that idea that uh, the Klan in the South would be an organization for law and order. Now, why would Thomas Dixon Jr. be writing glowing reports about the Ku Klux Klan? Well, it's because his father and his uncle were both members. And only were the novel's bestsellers, they were also influential to Gone with the Wind, and how even the second novel by Thomas Dixon, referred to as The Klansman, a romance of the Ku Klux Klan, would be made into a new concept kahuna called a motion picture. This motion picture idea would become a film called Birth of a Nation, and would be played at the White House by President Woodrow Wilson. The film plays heroic music as the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan appear just in
0: time to stop the murderous Negroes. Yep. Did you do you know Woodrow Wilson's quote? What do you call it, what he said about that movie when they screened it at the White House?
2: No, but that there is a weird caveat to it.
0: Uh, it was a hold on, I'm gonna pull it up because I want to make sure I get Please it. Please right. pull up
2: because that it's it's so rough to go about this one. That's why it's more credit to the great train robbery, is I, what I look at. Have
0: you guys ever actually seen the movie? Yes.
2: We I watched, watched the one the film? at a, yeah. a film school in high school and a film class in uh college as well. But it was uh the film was a modern tech I would say technically speaking, it was a work of art that they were able to capture a full story in a motion picture like this. And at the same time, one of the most reprehensible storylines imaginable. Like I I wanna say it's even like uh I think Mel Brooks was even spoofing it too, of uh when they had the black sheriff coming out where the white women at. <laughs> right. All right. So these are things that should be mocked and and laughed at. Um, but unfortunately that was being sold as like uh, you know. You want to talk about pop culture having a, an influence on uh, the culture, if you will? It's certainly certainly not a great legacy left behind by that movie, despite all of its technical merits.
1: I'd pick, yeah, that and up? I think one of the things that people um, like fail to realize or just don't really comprehend is that "Gone with the Wind" and all of these books that were written by uh, Thomas Dixon and everything the Klansman, they were novels. They weren't historically uh, completely accurate. There were novels, which means there's there's a little bit of history sprinkled in there to give it a little bit of believability. Mm-hmm. Historical but it's not, fiction, might one call that. Now. Yeah, right, historical fiction rather than, you know, but there's a difference between um, a historical um, piece and a novel. A novel is just going to take a little bit of history and sprinkle it in there to kind of set the stage or set the – uh, the setting or the time and the place kind of a thing and, and you're sprinkling in some some facts, but other facts are left behind. Like you're leaving off the back half of the mm-hmm. of the sentence, uh, just as you were pointing out earlier. It's almost like you,
2: you can hear them out loud defending on both sides of the issue too, to be to be pretty much honest. You can hear both sides uh, saying way too much, and then their voice trails off at the end. You know they're like, well, let me tell you, we got it's one of those kind of things.
0: All food is great because we have
2: exactly.
0: <laughs> so this is what Woodrow Wilson said. Uh, it was it's like writing history with light, lightning. My only regret is that it's also terribly true.
2: Oh damn! I wonder if that was because Woodrow Wilson's kind of a he's a crazy character in that one because he was the governor. He's from Virginia became the governor of New Jersey before becoming the president only because Teddy Roosevelt uh, decided to run on the third-party ticket on that one. So he's a controversial guy. You can never really We need out to do that one more time. I
0: think my mic was off one more time. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we're
2: going to queue it up. Uh, Woodrow Wilson became president because Teddy Motherfucking. Roosevelt ran on the Bull Moose ticket. Um, but interestingly enough, the whole story, I think you can say this with ease, is that it was a technical wonder that uh, Birth of a Nation was made. And then it, uh, it, it really, when you look at the content of the story, though, it makes it more so a blemish than an accomplishment.
0: Oh, 100%. So, do you, and, and I'm only asking this just because we're in the midst of the history thing. There was something that popped up when I looked up Birth of a Nation on here, and it was uh, Brooklyn
2: Chase? Yeah, Brooklyn Chase, for whatever <laughs> reason.
0: Um, but it was the question of whether or not that film deserved to be in the National Registry with other movies? And my argument still is yes. Like, I think it's important to not lose track of, like, what you say. History is doomed to repeat itself if you don't take account for what happened.
2: Oh, yeah. And then if you – to have this conversation, that honestly, that we're having right now as well, it is important to guiding people down. Okay, well, this is what was acceptable back then. This is why those people thought that. A lot of people are sold a false bill of goods on this whole thing, which is why we're going to go ahead and we're going to eliminate, uh, we're going to take the the fresh uh, uh, aromatic aroma of uh, this antebellum South as spun in Gone with the Wind of pre-war um, Southern hospitality and everything Here's the, if you're smelling the uh, the Glade air freshener, here's the turd left in the toilet bowl uh, of the real life story of part of Nathan Bedford Forests. Because in order to, Address the elephant in the room. Thomas Dixon's writing these romance novels, romance novels about the activities of the Klan, where they portray themselves as the protectors of the old ways. But what did these citizen activists actually do and why? Well, in order to determine that, we have to step away from the stoic and favorable light that many of the time viewed the Klan in and get an idea about the organization itself. Who better to start with that than Nathan 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 Forrest. Forrest? Now, uh, he's got a resume that will make you look twice, and we're about to throw to you here in a second, LP. You know what? Uh, it's your time to shine soon. I love that. It's I sure. <laughs> what we can do. <laughs> um, Nathan Bedford Forrest has a resume that makes you look twice. He is what was known as, this was his nickname, he was the Wizard of the Saddle from his cavalry military service. That's pretty cool, by the way. He also joined as a private in the Confederate Army and reached the rank of general. That's- yeah,
1: although he was already a, a leader amongst his uh oh, totally. his fellows uh, back home, but uh, when the war starts out, he enlists as a as a private. So he's not trying to uh puff himself up or anything, but he's going in and uh, doing what he can as an individual. His his uh what should we say, his uh his abilities uh, <laughs> what he's, he to to the, he's a soldierly to fella.
2: Yeah. Uh, he He's actually considered, there's a couple of specials that are done on uh, the History Channel about him where they talk about like the guy actually was a military genius. He helped reinvent the way that we we're using cavalry. Cavalry and artillery were starting to be blended together that you could have a cavalry, you could have an artillery round that you would shell the shit out of people and then as those shells are landing and they're recovering, now uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and his r- rangers, literally that's what he called themselves, the rangers or later on the, the clan had dragoons They would descend upon you uh, and start slashing with swords while you're literally two seconds. Imagine this. Imagine you're just, imagine you're a poor Irish fella. Just came (laughs) over, just came over from the old country where you're being oppressed and they send you down south where uh, you're afraid in England, the Protestants, I'm sorry, you're afraid in Ireland, the English Protestants are going to have you killed. So now you come to America and they send you down south to go fight the American Protestants that are trying to kill you. So you're sitting there, you're like, all right, three hots in a cot. Uh, They give me a gun, they give me a bayonet. Oh, boom, artillery shells are coming down. And just as I'm starting to get my hearing back, now there's some bastard in a gray sweater coming towards me with a giant, shit, I wish I was back home in dear old Ireland. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, he is giving... I want go yeah,
0: home. <laughs> it's the
2: truth, man. It's the truth. Now, uh, he also joins, like I said, as a private into the Confederate Army and reaches the rank of general, which is very impressive. He is also given credit out loud by Robert E. Lee as being dad, what was the quote, the best man in the Confederacy? Best man
1: in the Confederacy, even though Lee never really met uh Forrest uh face to face, but for what he was able to pull off in really the Western theater, the uh, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, the uh that that part of the of the Civil War, um, where Lee was more on the Eastern Front. So it's a good reason why they these two never really met uh face to face, but um well, by the reports mountain range betweens you. yeah. You know? uh, by the reports of what this guy was able to accomplish. Um, he was the best man in the Confederacy, to uh, Lee's uh, Lee's estimation. Which is worth noting here, too, because, uh, again, being referred to as the best
2: man in the Confederacy, being hailed later on still to this day as a military genius for some of the tactics he employed, and also enlisting as a private, there's a lot of cool things about Nathan Bedford Forrest. And there's a lot of bad things. So. Uh, it's very hard to get over his war criminal charges from an incident at Fort Pillow. And it's a little bit more difficult to ignore the whole being the first grand wizard of the KKK thing. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, born he's, in, he's a, yeah, he's the founding father, oh, if yeah. you will, the first president of the KKK. Was, uh, uh, and wait till you see this one, too.
2: That The end part of the story was, I thought, the most remarkable. Um, born in Tennessee in 1821 to a poor family, Nathan Bedford Forrest was raped. He was very tough, and he wasn't a stranger to a fight, as shown in 1845, when he killed two men and injured two more as revenge for the killing of his uncle, who was also his business partner.
1: Yeah, he so, went into business with his uncle, and then- uh, His uncle was there shot was, and killed. There were some outsiders that uh, these four guys uh, came to do his uncle in and- uh, Old Nathan took his, took I his revenge. I believe the
2: story was Nathan Bedford Forrest had a two-shooter, a double-barrel uh, pistol. Right. And he just, boom, one, boom, two, took them both out, then took the knife to the rest of the boys, letting them know, hey, maybe you don't fuck with Nathan Bedford Forrest and his business
1: dealings anymore. And Nathan was already shot himself in that, in that little fracas. So. He gets
2: wounded quite a bit. Yeah. He has horses shot out from underneath him during his service in the Confederacy. He actually takes a bullet to the pelvis, I believe. Yeah, Gosh. oh, yeah, even Cahoon is having a little sympathy there for that one. Yeah. Um, there ends there. Shot through the dick, and you're too late. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, he wasn't a stranger to a fight. Like I said, tough guy over here. Forrest will involve himself. Uh, he makes considerable money actually as a slave trader as well, which is why you can see. Oh, of course, you know what's coming in. Um, <laughs> it had to come in somewhere, you know? Like- if, if you replace slave trader with human trafficker, that's the best way to thing. describe it, without a doubt. Hey, we have a really great life here. I'm a good guy. I take care of my family. I made all my money in human trafficking. Wait, what? It, it's, it, it's the argument ender. You say, oh, your, your moral compass is a little off then. You can be a great family person, but you're dealing in human trafficking. So just replace slavery with human trafficking. And that should give you what I think we can all agree on is that that's bad.
1: Yeah, we finally yes. even brought Kahuna
2: around to that. Exactly.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yes, he did. Kahuna sure. act,
2: uh, but in between recordings here, folks, he's actually put out, he goes, please don't say anything bad about human trafficking. It's how Ming keeps the money in the studio here. <laughs> We're actually... That's right.
0: Where do you think that one intern went? Come
2: a shared on. universe. I haven't
0: seen Chris Madd.
2: Did he connect a paper? Shut card? up. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyhow, like I said, so this fellow's born in Tennessee over here. He's a smart man, by the way. Um he gets involved in That's all dangerous. Well he's uh he gets involved in all things pre war south that uh, are considered trademarks of that time for him. He's a land speculator, he's a slave trader, he's a gambler, he's a knife fighter, he's uh, great on horseback, he's running for public office.
0: What the fuck is a land speculator?
2: Oh, that you would own land and then you could wait for the property value to rise and then sell right. and picture stock market before oh, uh, the uh, stock market but but land.
1: Real estate. Uh, you're buying up real estate to sell it later on at a profit. So oh, okay. You're flipping, a, you're flipping land That's a, all. instead of flipping houses. You're flipping, flipping land. land. You yeah. know, like when uh, when the Confederate guys with their
2: long beards would come and knock on a door and then offer to buy your house for cash and then tell you, "What, what was the term again?" Because I like that land speculator. I like land speculator. Oh,
0: yeah. I, I dig that.
2: They Fuck you, Forrest, though. But uh, he also runs for public office. Like we said, he's a smart guy. He can read and write without much formal schooling. So part of that is whether did he teach himself or did he just use it on the regular here. But Nathan Bedford Forrest will use his skills with a sword and his experience on horseback to quickly climb the ranks of the newly formed Confederate cavalry. Forrest's Rangers, that's right, folks, Forrest Rangers, um, <laughs> would become elite cavalry. And his recruiting slogan was, Kahuna? kauna." Even you would sit there and be like, well, let me find out what this guy really means if the recruiting slogan is, let's have fun and kill some Yankees. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) I'll tell you what, it works in terms of making you read the sign twice. Yeah. Oh, shit. What what is that slogan? Like a good neighbor killing Yankees as here?
0: um yeah, no! and,
1: and growing up in in tennessee too i mean that particular area um was hotly contested between the north and the south because there was there was a very divergent viewpoints on the whole slave issue uh in there especially in kentucky because kentucky is a border state so mm-hmm. um one of the first things that the union did is when the South seceded and the whole Civil War started, that there was a number of states. There was four states who were considered border states that they didn't secede, but they didn't really uh, lock in with the with the rest of the union. So they were like a, a mix, a half and half, like a neutrals, um, and they quickly took over Kentucky and various parts of Tennessee to kind of seal that deal. That is. <laughs> We're not going to have any more states pulling away from us, so let's make sure that uh, we keep them on on our side and keep them under control. So things weren't really going too swell for the for the South early on in the Western Theater, and that's where Nathan Bedford Forrest really came to shine because he would lead these these Rangers into these varying raids that he wasn't um, he wasn't involved with any really. Large scale battles like we would come to know in uh, in the Eastern Theater, but uh, he was real good at. He was in at, a couple of a couple of good fights though. A couple, yeah. He was in, I believe, Shiloh and a couple of the others. But his his real forte was um, going in and, and striking in t- behind enemy territory and capturing uh, supplies and and taking prisoners and stuff, and then mm-hmm. skedaddling back to uh, to his side of the. His side of the road. So, a little bit
2: of a, a raider type yeah. uh, attitude here, which is uh, worth mentioning too, because he takes, he's got a keen military mind and he's going to take to the cavalry like a duck takes to the water. And then also, you're a, if you're in the Western campaign, like you were saying, Dad, it's a little bit of a smaller pond. You know, all the great generals, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, um, all those guys are usually. Yeah, a lot uh, of the
1: big names that, you come, oh, that we have come to know. They're or,
2: fighting in Bull Run, Manassas, if you're nasty, um, you know, all sorts of different things there. But uh, so this guy's going to be a big name very quickly, early on here. There are times when the guy's uh, actions on the battlefield are nothing short of heroic. He is able to burst out of sieges being laid down by the names of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, he's able to help defend Nashville for a time. He helped save the Confederate artillery there in Nashville by getting everything out of town before the city fell into the hands of the Union so that the artillery could be used later in the war rather than be captured. He will also continue to climb the ranks while fighting in the hottest spots of the Western campaign at places like Dad. You said Shiloh, Murfreesboro, and more. Now, during the Western Tennessee campaigns, Forrest would pull off a few incredible maneuvers. One of them being not only surviving a behind – and this is – say what you want. This is unbelievable. This is what he pulled off. He's talking to Braxton Bragg, who's his commanding officer. And Braxton Bragg goes, you're going behind enemy lines. You're taking these men with you. You're going to conduct raids. He goes – these are new guys. What are you giving me? You're giving me new guys to go pull a behind-the-lines guerrilla mission with? Yeah. And he goes, yes, you are. He goes, no, it's a terrible idea. You're, you're sending me and these men to their death. And Braxton Bragg goes, well, your orders are your orders. Go fill them out. So anyway, uh, our boy Nathan Bedford Forrest here, again, there's plenty of despicable things to hate about him here. But you can't not sit there and be like, hang on. He went behind enemy lines with new men and then came back with more men than he left with? <laughs> right. His, he recruited while behind enemy lines and brought back more men with him?
1: Yeah. Again, going into some of these border states and stuff, that there was uh, a mixed bag, if you will, of uh, who's on whose side. So he's leading this raid. And he would often lead at the front. And He wasn't leading from behind the lines. He was uh, in the, at the head of the charge kind of a thing. Plus, he had a great, <laughs> you know, you said that, like, before the war, he was a, a gambler. Well... Uh, One of the things that he was noted for, that he would capture uh, some of these supply depots and that kind of stuff, that he would completely surround them or, or ask for their surrender. And then by bluff, he would have his own troops like parading around, going around and around so that the guys in the in the fort or in the fortification or whatever you might say that holy shit, they've got how many? They got one, two, three. They got 15 different cannons all around us. Well, actually he had three, but he was parading them around and around the whole time. He was a when, you smart know, guy. So he, he made a lot of his captures and a lot of his great um, wins, if you will, was by bluff that uh, it wasn't only until after these guys surrendered and they took them prisoner. Like, Oh shit, you only had that many guys. We had twice as many people as you. Well, that's you. not the worst thing he when does after prof- they surrendered, Ed. Yeah. Listen, right. when
0: you're a professional bullshitter, you can fucking sell <laughs> yeah. any you can you could sell anybody anything. You could sell water to What was the joke? You could sell water to a uh, snowball to up. an Eskimo. Yeah. yeah, there yeah. you go. That was a great one. Anyway, where do we go from here? Well, what did so this motherfucker do?
2: Oh, no, we're about to set Lawrence Patrick up to shine because we're we're making Nathan Bedford Forrest sound like a
0: pretty good guy. Right I mean, now. I know what you led with. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I, even with all those accomplishments, I'm like, okay. So with all the right. use of his
2: cavalry as, quote, raiders, that will come back into play down the road for his Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. But before that, Dad, the big blemish on Nathan Bedford Forrest was. And again, this is an intimidating guy. He was six foot tall or whatever. He was a good public speaker. He was great. Um, great on horseback. Uh, great with a sword. Uh, very smart, disciplined guy. Obviously rising to the ranks very quickly here. But Dad, what do we know about what was referred to as an orgy of death <laughs> at Fort Pillow? Yeah,
1: how's that for a lead-in, right? Yeah. The orgy of death. And
2: I'll, I'll read the quote from Achilles Clark uh, later on here, Dad, to set you up for it. But okay. But just give the listeners an idea of the... the I mean, I, and Kahuna knows this. There's a pop culture reference that Kahuna I know knows because we've talked about it before. Um, it gets mentioned in a certain movie with Denzel Washington and Morgan
1: Freeman. And uh, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll notice it in a second. All right. Well, anyhow, um, it's late in the war. It's like 1864 at this point. and And um, Forrest has been leading these various raids And he's being very successful because he's bringing back a lot of the captured uh, munitions and and, uh, stuff for the war um, to the Confederate side. But he's raiding Union, you know, supply depots and that type of thing. Um, So he's really making that's one of the reasons why Lee was so impressed with this guy, because he's bringing in all kinds of good stuff for them to continue the fight. Um, Fort Pillow is this fort that's on the banks of the Mississippi River. Um, And early in the war, like 1861, uh, the Confederates are in control of this particular part of uh, Tennessee. And Fort Pillow is built by a Confederate general named Pillow. So that's how it gets its name. And uh, this fort is, as I say, is on the Mississippi River, and it's about 40 miles north of Memphis. So that was a a key strategic point uh, for them to capture. Well. And this is
0: pre-Elvis too. So like this yeah, it was is pretty considering right. you, you like got that. Graceland, you yeah. got
1: Graceland to protect. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So um, now that was like 1861 when this place was actually uh, built and the fortifications are overlooking uh, like on, on a high bluff um, protecting uh, the Mississippi. And the Mississippi is a huge uh, strategic point. Um, the Union captured, the Union side captures Fort Pillow. So the Confederates are out. It's now being held in, in, uh, Union hands. And by this point in the war, um, different things have happened through the duration of the war that really is changing attitudes because initially the war was being fought like, we got to protect the Union, that how dare they secede from the Union, And, you know, um, the union forever, hurrah, boys, hurrah, let's go out there and protect the union. But now things are starting to turn. And Lincoln is initially a little bit of afraid of coming out for the uh, anti-slave kind of a thing because of these border states. Because these border states are pretty crucial. And Kentucky is one of the border states that is very crucial. And that's, you know, that's right next door to Tennessee. Um, they needed so we, that bourbon. Let's be real. By this point in the war, we now control Kentucky and Tennessee. So he doesn't have to be that much concerned about um, some of these people that were not necessarily um, pro-slavery, but they were not necessarily um, you know, ready to free the slaves. But by 1863, um, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves, but only the slaves that were of the states that were in rebellion. So basically you're telling the Confederates, hey, all your slaves, they're freed people. That's by the decree of some northern uh, northern president, Abraham Lincoln, that now freed the slaves. Um, But by that Emancipation Proclamation, now for the first time we can have black troops volunteering and signing up to fight within the Union army. Well, this really pissed off the confederates that how de- first you're telling me that you're freeing my property and they're on a legal equal footing if you will of any white man because now they're free they're they're free they're just they're freed blacks.
0: And now you're telling me they're coming after me right. to and, get
1: them? And now now not only are you telling my slave that they're free but now you're telling my slave that they're free and they have the opportunity to carry a gun and fight against against me well anyhow fort pillow meanwhile back at fort pillow um this is really kind of a nowadays it's fort my pillow <laughs> that's right sleep sleep like you've never slept before did you
2: massacre everyone i knew you
1: would <laughs> Yeah, so Fort Pillow is not on the on the forefront of the battle lines kind of a thing. It's kind of a a, a backwater uh, type of a thing because again, this has already been captured and the fight has moved further south. But uh, Fort Pillow is now being um, guarded, if you will, by black troops. So you got black troops. Half the half the Union encampment was black, and the other half was white. The black troops that were now armed, a lot of them were freedmen or former slaves uh, that are now, you know, fighting for the Union as regular Union soldiers. And and these are, you know, the movie Glory obviously comes to mind here, but you're talking about
2: the people that are willing to fight and then are still treated as lesser thans, which is just beyond upsetting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean... by Lincoln's proclamation, by January first, eighteen sixty-three, any slave in the southern states is now free, according to Lincoln. <laughs> the Confederates might have a little something something else to say about that. Because the Confederates the Confederacy, in May of eighteen sixty-three, they passed a law stating that black U.S. soldiers captured while fighting against the Confederacy would be turned over to the state where they captured and would be tried according to state laws. So in other words, if you're in a fight, if you're a black soldier and you're in a fight and you get captured, you're going to be returned to slavery. Or depending on how what the state law that you got captured in, it could be that you're going to be executed. You're going to be you're going to be killed outright. Well, now we're now working so this whole thing the confederates did not take well, to the whole Emancipation Proclamation and even more so to the point where now you're telling me that my former slave could carry a gun and fight against me, that he's he's now shooting at me kind of a thing. So this Fort Pillow is now being garrisoned by um, um, about 50-50 uh, between white and black soldiers fighting for the Union. Um Nathan Bedford Forrest goes in and surrounds this Fort Pillow and is about to capture Fort Pillow. And um, early on uh, in the the fight, if you will, um, they're able to, the Confederates are able to get to within like 150 yards of the fort. There was a series of of encirclements or or um, embattlements. They get to within real close to the fort where Forrest has got sharpshooters set up where they're picking off these Union soldiers within the fort. And one of the first uh, snipers to to shoot takes down uh, the guy that's in charge of the Union garrison, this guy Bradford. He's killed. So now the second in command, or I'm sorry, Booth is the guy that was killed, and then this guy Bradford is the second it, in oh, command. Yeah, and didn't want to let it on that. Uh, yeah, and the didn't want to let it. No, like oh shit, those that sniper fire that we took, which was uh, pretty intense. Um, they killed the, the commander of the of the fort. Meanwhile, on they the killed Mrs. the
0: commander of Fort Pillow.
1: They, they, the sniper fire took out the commander of Fort Pillow. Yeah. The Union. All right. So now the second in command, the number two guy, is now in charge, but he's not letting on to the Confederates that the number one guy is now killed and he's now the guy in charge. They're just like number one says this, number one says that. Yeah. Number now this one's Fort dead Pillow. Married. This Fort Pillow is on the Mississippi River, and it's one of the one of the. Uh, Um, forts that are guarding Memphis kind of a thing, but there's also Union gunboats on the Mississippi River. So, and Bradford, uh, Nathan Nathan knows that these gunboats are on the Mississippi River. He's got the fort surrounded, but there's these Union gunboats on the river, and he knows that they're only about eh, maybe a half hour away. So there's possibility that there's going to be reinforcements. And now he's fighting on two fronts. He's fighting the guys that are in the fort, and he's fighting the guys that are on the river and sending in reinforcements and stuff. So uh, old Nathan sends in this thing, you've got to surrender. uh, And um, um, we're going to capture the fort. You're completely surrounded. Surrender now. And... The commander, the new commander now, the guy that just assumed command, sends back a message. Well, give me a half hour, <laughs> because he figures, well, within a half hour, I can probably get my guys to the river um, and jump onto the gunboats, or we can have reinforcements sent up to uh, um, counterattack you guys. Um, Either you fuck shit up or I'll fuck shit up. <laughs> That's right. He goes, "Hey, surrender," and he goes, "No,
2: give me." He goes, "All right, give me an hour to think about it." And then what's nathan bedford Forrest right back dad
1: no nathan says i gave you 20 minutes let's call it, <laughs> let's call it 20 here should have get off the pot dude because we're going in and, <laughs> in 20 minutes we're we're we're, we're um you know re- recharging it again and uh you guys are going to be uh you guys are going to be taken um That's exactly what happens. This guy tries to forestall the the whole surrender kind of a thing, does not surrender. But Nathan um, charges the fort and goes in. Meanwhile, some of the guys in the fort are trying to do the skedaddle and get down to the river, hopefully to the awaiting gunboats. Nathan had already sent some of his troops along the river to repulse the gunboat. To the point where they're taking the gunboats are now taking on murderous fire. To the point where they're closing up the gunports to the to the gunboats, so they're just a big floating tub out in the middle of the out in the middle of the Mississippi River. They're of no use. These guys are now skedaddling from the fort and in the fort, and Nathan is sending in the troops, and it's a take no prisoners. There's there's a take no prisoners call that. Um, these guys are just slaughtering um, slaughtering the Union soldiers. And if you're black in that fort, you're a pretty good chance that you're just going to be slaughtered. Even if you do surrender, even if you throw down your this weapons. This is just
2: where the quote's going to come in.
1: Yeah, throw down your weapons and surrender, you're going to be bayoneted anyhow. So, yeah, of um, course. You know, know how
0: that fucking works.
1: So, um, you know, by that, By that decree and by that um, um, order, these guys are just rampaging, murdering, slaughtering um, whoever happened to be left in in the fort at this particular point.
2: Now, Nathan Bedford Forrest will attempt to
1: distance himself from that. Some historians try to say he had no—the
2: Confederacy didn't acknowledge it, blah, blah, blah. There's a bunch of like catch-all public relations propaganda, retcon, whatever you want to call it. But in a a letter from one of Forrest's own sergeant, a guy by the name of Achilles V. Clark, who was writing to his sisters on April 14th, he will write out the following quote that should give you guys an idea of exactly what was going down at the massacre, the blood orgy at Fort Pillow here. Our men were so exasperated by the Yankees' threats of no quarter that they gave but little. The slaughter was awful. Words cannot describe the scene. The poor, deluded Negroes would run up to our men, fall on their knees, and with uplifted hands, scream for mercy, but they were ordered to their feet and then shot down. The white men fared, but little better. We're talking about the, the white troops that were mixed in with the black troops at Fort Pillow on the Union side. The fort turned out to be a great slaughter pen. Blood, human blood, stood about in pools, and brains could have been gathered up in any quantity. I, with several others, tried to stop the butchery and at one time had partially succeeded. But General Forrest ordered them shot down like dogs and the carnage continued. Finally, our men became sick of blood and the firing ceased. Yeah. That guy is doing a little thing called not sugarcoating it. Yeah, no. There was no end. You know what I mean? Oh, without a doubt. Now, was there anything else you had to
1: say about Fort Pillow, Dad? Yeah, there was just that. Again, the force was composed. Again, the, the Union papers just um, blew this up to through a fair deal. all? I mean, and now, now we have these new black troops, and now they're being slaughtered by the Confederates. So um, that really changed the whole scope of the war too. That um, before this, before Fort Pillow, there used to be a prisoner exchange. And now, once we had the Confederates slaughtering the black troops and the white troops as well, I mean, it wasn't just if you were black you were going to be killed after you surrendered, the white troops too, because the white troops that are in there they were, they were called by the Confederate side Tennessee Tories. In other words, they were from Tennessee, but they chose to fight for the Union. Tories
2: and loyalists,
1: right? Rather than, loyalist, right? Yeah, rather than fight terms. for the, rather than fight for the for the Confederacy. So again, this was. Uh, this was a civil war right within the the state of tennessee and the state of kentucky as well i mean there was it was uh, pretty, pretty uh, truly to monster but um there was uh there was estimates that there was over 400 black soldiers that were slaughtered in the, in the fort pillow uh,
2: imagine murder surrender you
1: know going down in in
2: such a fashion here that you've killed so many people that you actually your, your bloodlust is just satiated and you're like all right, this is a little ridiculous. Do I have to kill everybody? Yes, you have to kill everybody. You yeah, know, yeah. they're not vegetables you don't want to finish on your dinner plate. Yeah. These are people <laughs> yeah. screaming. Okay. Yeah. But
1: eat your Brussels sprouts.
2: Exactly. Now I have to, I have to give a shout-out real quick here to Lawrence Patrick Burke, my Delf of a dad, who's been doing this project with me for four years. <laughs> um, we torture you, Lawrence Patrick, justifiably often that you like to uh, rustle mm. rustle your papers during the episode. And uh, ever since, um, my beautiful mother, Sandy Burke, decided to, uh, she thought she could help the show out by getting me an iPad many years ago. And uh, it, did, it did. It helps. I use the iPad every day. We use it for notes and everything like that. Google Docs, dad, did not save the last page of my notes that I wrote on yesterday. Oh, shit. So, so now you're Lawrence stealing Patrick my papers. Burks, I'll go Lawrence Patrick, his papers. printout is the only thing we have to finish this episode with.
1: So, dad... From the bottom of my heart.
0: I ain't speaking my chaos language. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, old school comes to the rescue. Yeah, that or I would have to
2: pull it up on my cell phone and try to read off of that. But this is uh, that, that quote was important to me. That was written by, again, one of Nathan Bedford Forrest's own, own sergeants. Own guys, yeah. This is not uh, a union guy sitting there and saying, and the devil Bedford came like, yeah, this is my boss. He was kind of a dick this day. That's pretty much how he's saying it. <laughs> so... Anyhow, after the war has now ended, okay? And you can attribute that to wherever you want. And if you think that the Civil War ended with Robert E. Lee surrendering at Appomattox, or if you thought that maybe the Western campaigns or the guys turning outlaws are still fighting, there's a lot of chaos going on with all that. But the one thing that's undeniable is that the United States is in a very, very weird and very, very wild place. Slavery was ended, at least on paper, okay? In the South, They, it, the South was interesting. What they can do is... They can obstruct. Oh, black people are free now. Slavery is over. Like, all right, cool. So you can't have slaves anymore. Well, we what if we do a thing called sharecropping? Yeah. That comes into play a little bit.
1: And uh, enter black a, people
2: have the right to vote, but are we going to let them actually vote? Yeah. That kind of comes into the or thing. Or are we going
1: to have a poll tax or all the various Jim Crow laws that uh, now are placed? Oh, yeah. As I, a I've heard some detriment. people say
2: this too. There's a couple of historians that will say if you want the true. Um, where true racism in America, the, you can, the tangible one that you can still feel to this day, all comes from Reconstruction-era efforts because you, you saw what was supposed to be the clean slate get shit on immediately. You know what I mean? Not that it was going to be a clean slate or anything, but that's where policies that are in place around this time frame are still the ones that are affecting you know, the, the black community to this day in America in, in a lot of capacities. And you'll see why because there's a couple of examples here. The war has ended. The U.S. is in a strange place. You have to reconstruct the nation during the most tumultuous time in its history. Lincoln is dead. Johnson's a douchebag. Okay, Andrew Johnson. Bob. Yeah, That's and I was a- that,
1: what you just said, too, though, I think is a key point, too, that we finally defeat um, their armies, Lee surrenders at Appomattox, and in less than a week later, there's an asshole called John Wilkes Booth who shoots, our, who assassinates our president. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... Who intended to be very lenient on the South, right? He was. He was going to welcome the South back in, and that, after all, they are part of our country. They are our, our, uh, our, our countrymen, if you will. That, that all right. They had a little, <laughs> a little disagreement, and they tried to form their own country. But you know, we're we've saved the Union, and Booth then executes or assassinates Lincoln, and that just completely changed a lot of people's minds. That you know. Fuck that! Forgive and forget, shit. Now we're 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 going at you. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to punish you for the Civil War, which was uh, uh, the feelings for a lot of these uh, a lot of these people that uh, in, in Reconstruction. And mind you, too, Johnson uh, spins around on the regular,
2: too, that they start out being very harsh on the South. And then when he realizes that he might not get reelected right. and that the troubles are coming from his own Republican Party, uh, that's when all of a sudden Andrew Johnson starts saying, give me those old Confederates. See what they're up to right yeah. now. Hey, uh, old Confederate officers are allowed to vote again, by the way, just to let you guys know. Yeah. So. A lot of chaos. Not only vote
1: again, but come cold in public office again. in public office again. You (laughs) can vote
2: again. You swear your little love. Everything, all is forgiven as long as uh, everything lines up and I'm able to keep power. That's literally what it turned out being. So anyhow, Lincoln's dead. Johnson's a douchebag. The South had to be brought back into the fold of the United States while federal troops keep... All right, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we were down South and we were just... I wouldn't say well-off farmers, but we were farmers, right? The three of us here. And the federal government broke our backs, if you will. You know what I mean? Like uh, uncles, older brothers, neighbors, all gone off to war. Some of them came back, some of them didn't. And now these federal troops, largely made up of an immigrant force too, mind you, um, are now stationed down south. And they are it's martial law in certain parts of the south. And there are, ready for a, a callback kahuna? I don't know if he is. This one's gonna hurt him.
0: I like how deeply. Nah, nah, it's not gonna
2: hurt you. <laughs> nah. Uh this one you'll laugh at anything. So now imagine we're we're a couple of nice boys. We're down in the Carolinas. We're in like the Myrtle Beach area. So, so.
0: you're some good old boys never meaning no harm. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> Get this one. So there's federal troops now that have come down here. And they're and they're they're essentially the cops and the government.
1: They're yeah, the government. Yeah, they're calling the shots. Oh yeah.
2: It is uh The guys with the guns are telling you exactly what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, and don't cross them, right? And they're carrying out the orders of the uh, military governors, if you will, of the South, right? These are former generals that are appointed into roles of prestige, if you will, that are essentially operating as territorial governors, like the conquerors that the Union Army really was down there. So the locals that were in charge of things are not allowed to hold office anymore because they swore an oath to the Confederacy. Right? So you have to have a military governor put in down there. So imagine you're a nice boy from the Carolinas, and now you have to, you're just a kid growing up here. The military guys are in charge, and the guy that they're following the orders of is Dan Sickles. What? Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah. Dan was
2: Sickles was the military, military governor, governor of the Carolinas.
1: Yeah.
0: This is the best loser ever. <laughs> yeah. No way!
2: I still yeah. want to do a video about him one day with you. That we'll, we'll, We're going to shoot something after this, I think, but uh, we... The Dan Sickles one is I think what puts uh, the stamp on this show that everybody's going to start checking out. And there was a, there was another
1: union uh, officer who was uh, a military governor, if you will, that came up with the whole idea. I think it was Sherman that came up with the idea, hey, we're going to take all the newly freed slaves – and we're going to take away property from the former slave owners, some of these big plantations and farmers and that kind of stuff. And we're going to give them 40 acres and a mule to start their new life. That never really took place. No. But, uh, <laughs> you yeah, know, that was the promises made. But, again, politics got into the way that prevented any of that from happening. Because if you're the guy that is having his 40 acres taken away and given to some newly freed black guy, that's not going to sit too well either. So that's not... That's not going to schmooze over the locals, or at least the white locals uh, too much. But anyhow. Well, then um, you're also going to get the working
2: force, the the lower class um, folks from the South are now also going to sit there and be like, well, now am I in competition for the job market with the newly enfranchised? When we say enfranchised, being given the franchise to the, the blacks back then meant being given the right to vote. That's, right. that's what it was. And Thomas Dixon told this uh, ridiculous lie. They, they, they pretty much proved that it was a lie that, when they said that uh, they could get the franchise, that he was trying to paint this picture that uh, this is how um, unworthy of the vote that uh, that the you know that blacks were at the time, he said they showed up with wheelbarrows trying to get as much of the franchise as they could, thinking it was something tangible. And you're like, oh, that's a that's a clever story if you're trying to you know just go ahead and denigrate an entire group of people. Right. Like I could see why that would fit into your clan novels. Right. Um,
0: this is why you said it so beautifully at the start of this episode. Say the rest of the sentence. Exactly. (laughs) That's the
2: whole thing, man. So now the war's over. You're trying to figure out what's going on over here. Within just two years after Lee surrendered Appomattox, uh, now there's a lot of stuff going on here. As dad, you're kind of laying the groundwork for Like, hey, you know, all right, the war's over. We surrender. We're going to be Americans again, you know, because there's no other option. That's the other part too. Right. It's it's, it's gunboat diplomacy. Right. Uh, So anyway, uh, they agree they're going to become Americans again. And it's fine until you're like well you know uh before the war i was working for this plantation owner and then now i'm in job co- a job competition with a newly freed entire group of people right and uh, they're working for significantly less wages so that they can just stay on the land that they were being kept on in the sharecropping uh, aspect of it or you have these migration patterns of people that are like well hey listen we're being harassed everywhere we go so as a group of people we're going to band together their strength in numbers and we're going to go to different places or whatever uh, so now you're seeing population change, booms, bust towns, if you will, uh, things going on like that. And in addition to that here, too, is that uh, if you were one of those landowners, Dad, now you're seeing your land is being uh, redistributed, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to lead it. So these backroom social clubs are gathering up. We're like, hey, listen, you know, we lost the war, but do I really have to lose everything that I built, too? I mean, I can't afford to eat, blah, blah, blah. And these backroom social clubs are starting to have these meetings kahuna. All right. And a lot of it's made up of uh, Confederate veterans who, uh, you know, are sitting there or people who were, you know, family members of maybe someone that died. You know, oh, my dad died in the war fighting for this. And now I'm sitting here. I've got to get punished. I lose my dad and I lose this. And they're starting to build up this little sizable force of this backroom social clubs, if you will.
0: And they're starting to realize they like wearing robes, huh?
2: (laughs) Well, they figured out it was a, you know, it was after Memorial Day, so they could wear white. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then they were like, hey, these caps are pretty cool, too. I like the point. <laughs> exactly. What, what, if, uh, what, if we're, what if we're like the knights of something, right? What yeah. if we take a little Ivanhoe uh, you know, imagery and relate that? We become the knights of the Ku Klux Klan. So get a load of this. And that started out as the quiet backroom social clubs formed by Confederate veterans. And now is a sizable enough force that they know that they need leadership. So they go out. I believe it was the Maxwell House. Which uh, I don't think they want known. I, I can't. I, I should have clicked on that to find out if the Maxwell House Hotel. I think is where they were meeting. I don't know if that is uh, of the coffee Maxwell House. I don't know. Mm, Confederate coffee. <laughs> yeah.
0: Picture good picture, to the
2: last drop. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just picture picture a bunch of sleepy Klansmen. They're sitting there with like a cross that's burning, and the, the cross isn't lighting on fire. And then a guy just shows up with Maxwell House coffee.
0: Do 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 <laughs> <laughs> Demented history commercials. By oh my girl. god!
2: It's when I—I'll show you one after the show too that I think you got a kick out of. But anyway, um, it's 1968 when they decided that they're going to have to. It's not exactly 1960, not 1968.
1: 1968.
2: Yes, correct. <laughs> <laughs> not 1968. There was a little. I was going to say mess that up on the regular. <laughs> yeah it is 1868. 1868 and nathan bedford Forrest has now been voted in as the first leader of the ku klux klan and uh there's this idea that he is going to be the avenging angel of the south That they are the protectors of the old ways they're, they're giving themselves all the dignity here but like you said kahuna it's a pretty good thing say the rest of the sentence we're going to make sure that things are kept the old way when blacks weren't people um what, what you about, said that with a little much, too you, much gusto, you, there, buddy. You see, you, you, what, what, what did you say that last part? <laughs> There's a great sketch that somebody did. Where it was the Ku Klux Klan? They said, "Yes, yeah, so we're the Ku Klux Klan. We're here to make sure." Um, yeah, but hey, I was curious. Do we have to hate? Um, do we have to hate all black people? Because I really like Will Smith. <laughs> and then everybody in the clan is like, oh, Men in Black was a great movie. Oh, Independence. <laughs> and then they just sit there and it's every person like, well, I really don't hate them. And it's just the clan realizing slowly, like, oh, we actually don't hate anybody. <laughs> um, we just like the robes. They're comfy. Yeah. It's, a, it's a freeing thing. It's a moo It's like a hockey jersey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no one's going to get that but me, but it was yeah. worth it. <laughs> uh, somebody else got that one besides you, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dad. There was a moment of silence there from the engineering room.
2: But they have created this idea that Nathan Bedford Forrest is going to be the avenging angel of the South. Here is our leadership, one of our great generals from the South. Meanwhile, by the way, Robert E. Lee is trying to talk about how you have to heal the nation. Stonewall Jackson's dead. So Nathan Bedford Forrest is one of the most charismatic figures of this time frame, and especially out west where you're further away. This is the whole thing. The farther you are from the central government, the more inclined you are to disregard them. So this guy was a hero for, you know, the, the western part of the country here, uh, the southwestern part of the country as well. So get a load of this one here, if you will. By 1868, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is already now officially sworn in as the first ever Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. By the way, getting that name from him being the Wizard of the Saddle, now he is the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And by the way, they were calling themselves the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan to try to give a little, um, an extra uh, sense of... Um, uh, altruism, I suppose, that they're a, a serving organization. They're here to do everything for everybody else. You know what I mean? They're honorable. We're like the Knights Templar. But anyway, um, he tells a Cincinnati newspaper that the Klan's numbers nationally are over 500,000 strong all over the South. And while he called the organization a political necessity and a force for good, He, out loud, denied being a member, even though witnesses and written accounts exist of him being sworn in formally at one of those Maxwell House meetings. So the Klan was unfortunately a legitimate political force. They were true here. So what do they do? All right, well, the the big government in D.C. says blacks have the right to vote. So they say, OK, you have the right to vote. Are you actually going to do it? What if we got some dogs here waiting for you? What if we show up at night and we start burning your house down with you in it? What if we have street lynchings like back in the old days? We just jump upon somebody with a bunch of trumped up charges. Maybe not even that. No. Maybe you know, something as simple as uh, a minor transgression. Oh, he looked at me, you know, uh, queer on a Sunday or something. Okay. And they would lynch people up. They would kill. The, the numbers blew my mind when you uh, hear about some of the. And they did a great job on this in the Ulysses S. Uh, Grant documentary that Leo DiCaprio did for the History Channel. Did you watch that, Kahuna?
0: No, I didn't even know that was a thing. It
2: was very good. DiCaprio is the man. How he, long he, ago? He's great for that. Uh, Loser was already on the air because it was a two. We, we've mentioned it on the show a couple of times. So it's within the last four years, but um, it was really remarkable. And one of the, the most heartbreaking things I did a reenactment of was um, it was uh, some of the race riots going on. Uh, there was a meeting of black voters. I believe it was like the, the, the Black Voters League or something like that. They got together to have a meeting in New Orleans. And uh, and New Orleans, by the way, has a a conflicted history, too, because there's certain parts of their history where they were so wildly progressive and ahead of other parts of the United States because of uh, Creole culture and coming from a a French and Spanish vibe, which would be more accepting of Catholics and stuff down there. So it it is a little heartbreaking when you hear uh, Louisiana that seem to have a little bit more racial harmony going on. There was also, the Klan showed up in great numbers there to burn out an entire hall full of uh, vote. They barred the doors, they trapped people inside, and they, they burned to death for having the audacity to have meetings to say, hey, we're, what are we going to do with this right to vote that we have Voter registration causes them. So, yeah. <laughs> burn them down. And, and by the way, not, it, it is a very um, uh, necessary attitude to have. We're like, hey, the government just gave you a right to vote. Well, I don't want that. You know what comes with that? Those fucking crazy dudes and the cloaks are going to come after me at night if I say I'm going to vote. I'm not voting, guys. Nope, not a voter. Not right. a voter. Just just moving on.
1: Plus, <laughs> a- when you did vote, um, there were – you know people could count exactly who who voted for – which box did you drop your ballot into? Oh, yeah. The Rule of Eights or whatever they yeah. called it, I think. That, that was the first uh,
2: – one of the first May- – by the way, voting, it's what got Edgar Allan Poe killed. You know what I mean? <laughs> that should be a great thing, voting. It just showed a picture of dead Edgar Allan Poe not even once. <laughs> yeah. Voting is a gateway drug. It leads to, <laughs> <laughs> leads to death. Without a doubt, man. So uh, now again, 1868, Nathan Bedford Forrest is telling these newspapers out loud, oh, by the way, if all it would take for me to muster up the men, I can have five, an army 500,000 strong, uh, you know, descend upon. So it's, it, is that a fear thing? Is he doing the same thing he was doing with the artillery dad over at Fort Pillow where it's, you know, d- does he actually have this many people or is he just saying that and hoping that we don't call his bluff? Right. So anyhow, they are a hell of a political force here. They combine, uh, they're, they're terrorists. They are domestic terrorists. That's a great thing that the, the Leo doc does about Ulysses S. Grant is that it really shows them they were the first true domestic terrorists. Um, now they were using some of the, some like harassment tactics, if you will, here, but they're all targeted against a specific group of people and it is for a political motivation. That is the definition of terrorism. So the Klan's a political force with voter suppression, intimidation, and coercion A very common practices here. They would combine all that with nighttime raids. They were the hooded figures, burning crosses, and street lynchings. Their usefulness would even get them invited to get a load of this kahuna. This one trips a couple of people out on this one. Uh, We talk about it, and it is an oversimplified way to say it, but people always talk about um, the the party switching sides or whatever, which is uh, an egregious uh, oversimplification that we combat on the show here. But it is fascinating that people would not understand this, that uh, <laughs> New York City was very pro-Confederacy. Yeah. It's weird. It, it's crazy, but it's what
1: it was. Manhattan? Specifically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because there was a lot of money in Manhattan that was being made by slavery, by the by the um, cotton. Cotton was king. Cotton was one of the chief a national gross national product kind of a thing tobacco as well tobacco tobacco and cotton were the two one of the
0: two they just weren't growing it there that's where all the business was the
2: south grows everything the north manufactures everything that was kind of what it was that was actually a a real big moment too for when they realized that the war the longer the war went on the better the odds were for the north because the south couldn't resupply because they hadn't gone towards um the industrial revolution hadn't hit quite as hard as it did up there in the major cities. And again, there's that, there's that ridiculous, if you want to talk about um, perception being a, a little bit off kilter, um, there was that political cartoon that uh, I know we showed you this one, dad, for one of the episodes. It was in one of my history textbooks at Brookdale. But uh, the picture was um, the Industrial Revolution going on in like a major city, like in say Baltimore. And they were showing um, a guy who got hurt. Um, literally, I think the guy was holding like his severed hand or something like that being carried off on the back of a door slab by his other uh Irish catholic uh, workers mm-hmm. in the in this terrible death mill factory that he was in up north and it said uh so that was showing you what would happen if you got hurt on the job there if you got hurt on the job as a slave they showed like the slave owner feeding you like a ladle of soup right. in the warm bed keeping Jesus. you like, <laughs> feeding you, you know, yeah.
1: who's really the animals here <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, and that was all part of the uh, the lost cause. Uh, this propaganda origin story yeah. is a propaganda that our slaves were our property, so we treated them well, and we gave them religion, and uh, we you're gonna you're gonna treat your your property better than the Northerners uh, treat their factory workers. That uh, you know, if your factory worker gets hurt, who gives a shit? Just bring was in another a, a worker. Great
2: effort in public relations.
1: Right, which is the new name
2: of propaganda, Edward Bernays, yeah. lose reception. Um, anyhow, so now the Klan is working a little too well here, folks. Okay, um, Their usefulness gets them invited to Tammany Hall, lose reception.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Yep. So the old Confederate jump, because, hey, this is how you get – this is what you're seeing here is actually the start of what will go on to be the Southern strategy, if you can get the solid South to all vote in one block for you.
0: This is like one of those episodes – where we call back to the movie of American Loser, which was the fucking Tammany Hall 3 part. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> so The one got us on Wikipedia? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
2: Yeah. So now Nathan Bedford Forrest, viewing himself as the avenging angel here. He's got this uh, group. He's now being brought in as a uh, political advisor, if you will. A little bit of a kingmaker type thing. If Nathan Bedford Forrest endorses you... How many other states in the South are going to endorse you? Get a load of this one. This is worth mentioning right here, folks. Okay. This is where politics still is affecting us here to this day. So um, the Klan, like we said, political force over here. Now it's ugly. Some of the things that they're doing over here, this Democratic National Convention, they're being invited to Tammany Hall for these meetings. They are offering a seat at the table to leaders of an organization that had just killed a rival political organizer. I forgot the guy's name. It was George something, but... He was the Republican organizer in Tennessee, and the Ku Klux Klan showed up at night, and like eight guys shot him all at the same time. We'll show you what happens. You try to you know, have a Republican fundraiser down here. This is old school. This is our territory. Stay right. out.
1: So, um, this is by definition a Southern Democrat. That's that's where for that time frame, yes, correct. yes, for that time frame. Yeah.
2: Now, uh, especially in an, their their problem is this: the Klan is good at what they do. You don't want the vote turnout here. We're going to make sure that our campaign of terror keeps everybody afraid to vote against us. You need to make sure a vote turnout comes here. We'll give us a couple of biscuits. We'll go on down there. We'll make sure everybody votes the old Ku Klux Klan way. Who, what, what you know, which organization, you know, which uh, candidate rather has the support of the KKK in mind? Almost like uh, I don't want to say it because it's not the same, but. It's the same way that the NRA releases letter rankings, letter grades for each of the candidates to say, oh, this this Democrat, of the Democrats, this one has the strongest rating from the NRA mm-hmm. that would carry out the most support for their cause. That's kind of what the Klan was doing here back then. It's a sloppy analogy, but it works. Um, now, here's the thing. This is where the Klan is going to be almost um, expedited, if you will. Their usefulness gets them invited to have a seat at the table over here. However, um even though everybody can understand that killing rival political organizers is ugly, it's not too much to the point where they're not willing to work with them because after all, folks, it is an election year. It doesn't help much that the man who helped crush the Confederacy, Ulysses S. Grant, okay, is now going to it, the, the guy who got accepted the surrender from Lee at Appomattox that effectively ended the war. Ulysses S. Grant is now on the ballot to become the next Republican president. With many former Confederates making up the voting block in the South, the Klan helped to oversee black voter suppression. And in the process of doing so, we'll see over 1,000 black Americans get killed for attempting to vote or the fear that they might vote. So here's here's the government saying, hey, black community, here's something that we've been meaning to give you for a while. We're very sorry about that. And then the black community is like, do we, do we take this? What do we... There's nothing bad's gonna come with this, right? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. no, everything's fine. We're gonna be over here back in Washington, DC, and the guys that we just punished are in charge of you now.
1: Yay.
2: <laughs> yeah. It is the shittiest hand they could possibly be dealt.
0: I liked your little kermit. K- k- yeah. <laughs> At the <end> of the <laughs> Good Lord.
2: Oh, it's bad, man. Um So, and that number shocked me too, by the way, to see over a thousand black Americans are killed just in that one election year, one election year. Okay. We talk about, it's too terrible today. Politics is awful today. I don't know. I think we're doing a little better every time we have an election and thousands of people aren't killed in the process. So uh, again, a lot of Confederates make him the voting block in the South here. That's why things like this were going on. But again, much like his actions at Fort Pillow. So he executes and murders all these people at Fort Pillow. That becomes a rallying cry for, again, in the movie Glory. They talk about that. These Those right. boys
1: got no quarter. That became a that became a battle cry for the, uh, for the, the black Alamo. troops. Oh, yeah. Remember the Alamo or remember Pillow? Give, give him hell, 54th. Yeah. So um,
2: I'm overdue to watch Glory again. Um, but anyhow, they wind up uh, – this backfires and the nonstop killing. Uh, there's only a couple of states in the deep, deep south that don't wind up getting – on. you know, that don't allow what the Klan is doing to decide their vote for them so get a load of this one here the brutality helps to turn public opinion against the Klan, and ulysses s grant is able to win the votes needed to become the president of the united states during the pivotal reconstruction years if you look at american history it's kind of like this lincoln was all this great promise for what could be and he was going to be soft on the south and he was going to have a policy of forgiveness and i forget what the number was i think he needed like uh uh, a certain amount of percentage of the South to swear a loyalty oath before he could allow them to be readmitted to the Union or something like that. It was very lenient is what he was going to do right. to the point where his own generals were like, well, what the hell are we fighting in a war for if you're going to be this soft on everybody? Then Johnson comes in. Johnson's way too hard on them in a revenge campaign. And then Johnson's way too soft on them once he realizes he goes, oh, I need these guys to keep power. So you're, you're really one of the ugliest times in American history. Ulysses S. Grant kind of achieves... Uh, he's the guy who can set things right over here. And it's kind of a forgotten presidency. If you haven't seen a histo- uh, the History Channel documentary, please check that one out. It was very well done. Um, but he's able to win uh, the office of the presidency for the United States over here. And it's a twofold thing. Because number one, he's a Republican, which is that's the crazy party that was coming in and, you know, uh, uh, the, free, free the party of were, Lincoln. Oh yeah, the free blacks were running for office in South Carolina. And by the way, they were, most of them were kicked out of office too, by the way, a lot of them by their own Republican party. Uh, who didn't accept them. So there's no, whenever they try to say, well, the first blacks were actually Republicans, you know, the whole public office, like, oh, that's cool. What happened to them? Say the full sentence. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, But anyway, so to get to the the bottom line here, Ulysses S. Grant is their former commander of the Army of the Potomac. He is now also the president of the United States. He represents what's going to be a big change over here. And this brutality of killing people in the act of voter suppression is kind of ruining the I can't believe I'm saying this sentence out loud Kahuna. It's ruining the good name of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> Nathan Bedford Forrest is saying like this isn't what we signed up for. So I you can't tell if he's a rat attempting to get off a sinking ship or if he had a genuine change of heart over here. But these are those pivotal reconstruction years in the South where shortly thereafter Nathan Bedford Forrest will actually step down as the Grand Wizard and orders the destruction of the entire organization. Literally sends, "Hey guys, destroy your outfits. We're done. There's no more clan. It's over. It's yeah. done.
1: And Forrest also, in the final two years of his life, found God that I think he, uh, he accepted well, he, one yes. of the one of the religions, uh, Christian religion that, uh, I guess he found Jesus somewhere along the line. But. Well, it's funny too, because Kahuna's going to be upset at the last part of this. He's already got... Well, well no, got, not a
0: question, more of a statement, because you've got to make a distinction, is that I know you said in the beginning of this podcast, you have to say, and with with everything in in terms of the story. But I'm also going to add, you also have to say, but. (laughs) But. Uh, And (laughs) I'm going to say that because. uh, That's excellent. Because here's why. Because yes, the Ku Klux Klan ends Gen 1.
2: Because, but. Gen 1 is a good way to phrase it.
0: Then circle back to good old birth of a nation guess who comes back for gen two
2: well here's where it, 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 you're making a great point
0: yeah and also
1: i mean let's when not forget that the ku klux klan had a major rally or parade right down in new york up, 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 new york but in washington in, dc as well
0: madison square have you ever seen that photo the madison
1: Ma- square garden I think you're talking about the nazi one no there's one of the ku klux
0: the klan ku klux as well The
1: kkk was on the stage with the nazis in the madison i believe square they were garden that, that wouldn't shock me on that one yes
2: so here's a. Uh, This is where it gets uh, interesting. So we're saying that Nathan Bedford Forrest is calling for the destruction of the Klan. Never actually happens. And you, again, you don't know if that's like a, hey, the ship is going down, so distance yourself as much as you have to, or um, I don't want to, if someone steps down. Okay, an example, an example here. Vince McMahon is dealing with a scandal, okay, in the WWE. So Mm -hmm. Vince McMahon (laughs) steps down as the CEO, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens? As soon as that court case gets settled, boom, he's right back in. So it's all about um, illusion,
1: if you will. Yeah, so, and I think that, that whole thing too- but I got
2: to make sure we just get this one point here. The Klan doesn't go away. He orders the destruction of it and everybody disregards it. Yeah, it doesn't him. go away. So it, Nathan Bedford Forrest's Klan goes away, but the Klan sticks around. So just want to make sure we get that out there.
1: Even the fact too that he orders the destruction of the KKK that it should be disbanded. Is that part of the whole Lost Cause uh, mythology that, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, this guy that- um, was in charge of the murder at Fort Pillow. The slaughter at Fort at Fort Pillow is elected to the was it the Imperial Wizard, uh, the head honcho, the Grand the KK, Wizard, Grand yes. Wizard, the uh, the Grand Wizard of the KKK. And now, well, years later, well, he really wasn't part of the KKK. That, that's 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 a, he wow. denies, oh, speculation, it's it's know? a great. I think the term is retcon, right?
0: Did, yeah? Do you guys have the quote? From the end of his life? Well, he's got a
2: couple, so I'm going to ask you because I think you might have uh, one of the good ones here. This is actually this is where was the it about out. the barbecue? Yes.
0: Oh my god! I I'm I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, but I was looking. No, I wanted to find a picture of this dude, and when you look him up online,
2: he well, I, gives I believe, off.
0: Yes, I founded the KKK energy. Well, I believe that he's actually
2: referenced in Forrest Gump that he is who Forrest was named after. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they show him to be a Klansman in that little vignette too. I believe, if I remember right,
0: it has they, been a long time since. Yeah, I they don't shy away out. from
2: that. Um,
1: That's crazy. Well, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, just, I'll tell you what. what let's, let's
2: finish the story, and then we'll we'll yeah. um, we'll finish everything else up here. Uh, so, Ulysses S. Grant becomes the president here now. Whether it's because Grant is now the president, or because Grant is actually funding things that are enforcement acts, which will. Uh, provide federal troops to guarantee the safety of blacks while voting. You've been given the right to vote. By choosing not to vote, you're we're not accomplishing anything. That this you know, the Klan isn't saying you can't vote. They're saying see what happens when you try. So uh, shortly thereafter, in these pivotal construction years, Nathan Bedford Forrest does step down as the Grand wizard, orders the destruction of the entire organization. He tells his men to destroy their outfits. Decided the group was no longer manageable or worthwhile. Now, was that because? The Klan was picking up some of this new race war type stuff that he wasn't totally on board for? Was he having his own change of heart personally? Was it the idea that, hey, this is already a losing political strategy because Grant is now the president? We fucked up. We overplayed our hand here. Is the Klan a sinking ship? Or is it because the feds are being prepared to enact enforcement laws that will defend black voters and crack down on the Klan as domestic terrorists? The answer is probably all of the above. So... Whether it was the premonition of legal entanglements to come or a genuine change of heart, Nathan Bedford Forrest will write letters to authorities offering to help exterminate those responsible for hate crimes in his area. He will also give friendly speeches to black gatherings at halls. And hell, he was even, as Kahuna discovered, invited to a black barbecue in Memphis before his death from diabetes in 1877. Now, we know that if he had real black friends, they would say he died of the Sugars.
0: I was about to say he 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 fucking
1: <laughs> karma's a bitch, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, Memphis uh, Memphis,
2: Memphis barbecue is a little sweet. I right? was going to say it's it's the best. Andy Hyroller lives down there now, and he says that he was learning how to make his own Memphis hot sauce down there, oh, and it sounds tremendous. Oh shit! What was the quote you found though, Cohen's?
0: It was. Um, uh if you want to read it, you can. But I, I just. Oh,
2: I don't have it on here.
0: Oh no, then I'll pull it up. It was him basically apologizing for—I mean, as much as he could. Oh know? yeah, I
2: believe he encouraged them to live in truth, to work hard. To yes. Your so faith. here it is.
0: Just a few months before his death, Forrest attended an African American barbecue in Memphis, uh, aiming to right his past wrongs. Forrest encouraged African Americans to work, be industrious, live honesty, and act truly. As well as declaring that when you are oppressed, I will come to your relief. Yep. Wow. What a fucking 180.
2: It is. And, and if he meant it, and I'll tell you
0: what, to be... I think
2: he did. I do believe it, too. I Because I, once you've seen... Because when
0: you live your whole life with that much hate in your heart, and you get to... I feel like with, at, when you get to that point in your life, you're kind of like, it ain't fucking worth it. Like, he might have been sick by that point, because you said he he was sick from diet, from the sugars at that point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean it it makes sense to me at the least
2: i'd like to think that he he did show um genuine change of heart on that it would be nice it's tough too because here's the thing that you're dealing with where it's uh we know on the show that's what we really try to do and i hope we did a good job with painting this uh down the middle that the, the truth is in this the middle that seems to be where you can get hey this person one side's looking at him like he's a saint and a folk hero and the other side is saying that he was you know literally hitler and like oh cool it's a little bit in the middle and uh at the same token when we're going back to what we were starting with with margaret mitchell's gone with the wind was pre-war south antebellum was was it all just beautiful dinner parties and gorgeous i asked my mother this as an experiment i thought this was good (laughs) i said mom what do you think of when you think of gone with the wind pre-war South, like that, you know what I mean? She goes, "Oh, I'm picturing like big houses, like a big, big staircase, I'm like yeah, a royal ball, a Camelot adjacent type thing." Um, there, there's a lot of positive imagery that gets conjured up here, and then okay, we'll finish the sentence. What if you were black? Like, oh yeah, that big party they're having over there. There's a big staircase in that section of the house I'm not allowed in. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's not hard to, to paint the full picture here. Mm-hmm. So it was not a perfect Camelot, nor was it uh, you know friggin'. Uh, death on sight either. I mean, people had changes of heart. People had, uh, you know, they were able to acknowledge. And by the way, poison sources, not necessarily malicious ones, but poison sources that were bending the truth a certain way is
1: what gave Margaret Mitchell the idea that she was painting a realistic picture here. Right. And again, by pop culture, if you see a movie or you read a book and then see a movie, why read the book when you can go see the movie? And then your whole perception of that time yeah. frame, that Cajuna era, saw clerks. he worked in a convenience store. It was not glamorous at all. He right. says, right, right. Um, you know, and so much of our perception of of history is was the, the Battle of the Alamo. Was it really John Wayne sitting in the, at the top of the battlement, swinging his rifle, uh, beating off the the dirty Mexicans for? trying Mm. to take back their own country better way to phrase that uh, if
0: you want me to cut that out
2: (laughs) (laughs) that was fess parker by the way swinging the uh old betsy at the very end what did i say john wayne went into uh when he dies in the alamo the version that he directed which is a visionary masterpiece um John Wayne actually gets uh, bayoneted. Playing Davy Crockett, gets bayoneted in the uh, chest. Right, then carries the torch into the powder room and blows up all the ammunition all right.
1: with him. But our, my point is, the image hero. that we have in our minds oftentimes is from a from a movie or something, and it's not necessarily historically accurate. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, was 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 Custer one of the last guys to uh, to die at the Little Bighorn? Uh, who the frig knows? You know you nobody want, knows. A, a perfect example
2: with Custer, by the way, excellent example. I remember watching uh, an old Western with Uncle Paulie a couple of years ago, and uh, Uncle Paulie and I were watching. We're, we just couldn't stop laughing because it was Custer's wife was like, a,
0: "Oh, Custer,"
2: that kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, they showed him running, like riding the horse off into battle and fighting or whatever like that, and then they cut him losing completely out of the. <laughs> He died defending uh, his men or something like that. And at the very end of it, like the, the wife gets like a proclamation made to honor him or something. And Uncle Paul and I are literally laughing watching this, like, holy shit, they've spun this story a little bit. Yeah, God. but you guys
1: knew the story. That's exactly. my point. That's you guys the knew the story.
2: Because the the way, the final image of this movie was uh, Custer uh, standing on, like, a mountaintop looking out over the west, like, with a looking glass. Yeah. The, his his spirit is still out there, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, defending all that is good. And you're like, Custer? That... that- <laughs> to quote Al Swearingen, that blonde-haired, blue-eyed son of a bitch got what he had coming. <laughs> That's right. But anything else you want to say on the topic on our way out? Because I thought we did a pretty good job. I think we were fair on everything.
1: Yeah, it was just just how people can bend um, their viewpoint, and part of the lost cause too. I mean, if, if you're a southerner and the war is now over, are you going to? We got the, the shit kicked out of us. 300,000 of our boys, you know, husbands, uh, sons, uh, were killed in that five-year fracas, right? 300,000 people, that's a lot. I mean, your, your economy is completely in the shitter. Total destruction everywhere you look throughout the South. Lots of Chinese. Are you going to say that our boy, 300,000 of our guys died? for nothing uh, we're gonna have to change the the storyline here a little bit and maybe we got to bend that to justify that this wasn't a thing this wasn't a fight over slavery this was over states rights you know? and, and and right but does the state have the right to but. hold other people in bondage <laughs> you know that, that, that's that's the other but. so I mean th- this whole thing this whole lost cause I mean you can see why people were, trying to bend it to that lost cause viewpoint type of a thing. But at the same time, uh, you know, the truth lies in the middle somewhere. There's a great key and peel
2: sketch that they did. Do you know what I'm talking about? Kiona? Did you, I don't know if you watched that show or not.
0: I did, but not as much as everyone else. Did. Yeah.
2: I, I caught it every now and then uh, whenever they'd have a great sketch, but the one that they did that was great was it was a uh, key and peel um, to black comedians. Uh, but they were uh, what they were doing. They were at a, confederacy uh, reenactment mm-hmm. and it was they had like the confederate general there about uh, an honor and like you know pr- portraying the full on myth or whatever. so in order to make them feel more realistic the two black comedians dressed up in chains and bondage oh there, yes, sir Mr. Mister General sir I to, and, and <laughs> making them uncover like why are you what are you guys doing he goes, oh we're just acting like you know how we would have been in those times you know what I mean and they're like Well, you're making me feel uncut- you're kind of undermining my story here and like yes keep going <laughs> finish the sentence but no, that was a great sketch as well, man. And by the way, uh, just to have a, a proper framework around something—if that ruins your ability to enjoy the art or whatever—I don't, I don't think it does. I think you can feel for uh, you know Scarlett O'Hara and the family losing everything in the world, quote, exploding from underneath them. I think you can feel bad for them uh, without having to sit there and be like, "Oh, well, if only the South had won, none of this would have happened." I think you can, you can. Uh, uh, Educated person can make the differentiations that they have to here and there. So uh, I'm hoping that we did a good job on this one because it wasn't all Camelot, but it wasn't all hate crime either. Unfortunately, it was an ugly part in the middle somewhere. And if Nathan Bedford Forrest on his deathbed is going to black barbecues and saying, I will, you know, if you are ever oppressed, I will come help you. um, Then maybe that's a sign that if you're a true believer in the movement and your own leader isn't.
1: You know, yeah maybe maybe you're being sold a bill of goods that's worth a, a yeah. little reinspection. Viewpoints can be changed. I mean do we all have the same viewpoint that we had from, you know, well, depending on how old you are, 40 years ago or mm-hmm. 30 years ago or 15 years ago. Let's see, 40 years ago I was negative 5. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's my point but um, the older we get sometimes the smarter our fathers get. <laughs> and you want to say on the way out there old, is, old,
2: handsome smart father of mine we'll leave that alone <laughs> i hear you i got um what do i have to do i should actually promote some upcoming dates i have i should pull all that out but uh march i'll be down st patrick's day weekend march 17th and 18th there's two different breweries in virginia i'll be at with actually it's john gilbreth put that together do you know him Kona?
0: I do not actually
2: yeah, good guy uh comic book guy early on he was a. Uh, uh Navy veteran, actually. He lives down in Norfolk now, but he was stationed in Jersey. Huge Kevin Smith fans. So we met him. He was actually on the roast with me uh, that we did at O'Halloran. Ah, word. So, great okay. guy. He's putting that together. it be me and him on those shows. Uh, I'll post that stuff up on my social media. If you want, folks, go ahead and follow me over at, at KP Sucks on Instagram. There is no more American Loser Instagram, unfortunately. We lost it. so We can regain it. Uh, we could, we could. It's uh, there's a couple of things too. The uh, book is uh, something that's going to be. We're moving forward on that one, so uh, that book should be out in time for the election year. A couple of the projects we're working on as well. You guys will know all about that stuff. Do me a favor, keep in touch with me at KP Burke sucks over at Instagram, KP Burke on Facebook. There is an American Loser Facebook page if you so choose to follow it. And if you feel like subscribing to the channel over on YouTube, we're going to be doing more uh, content over there as well. And uh, finally, got a, a tour of the Smot Castle Kahuna you enjoy it we're gonna have some fun over there i think oh hell yeah there's a couple ideas man ernie gave me a good tour of it the other day um but life is good man uh kahuna where can people find you
0: uh you can check out my stuff uh arcade productions on youtube uh i work with that that christian Cordes fella he's 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 all right he's not too bad Uh, i heard
2: uh i heard he was also at a memphis barbecue recently is that true
0: yeah where'd you go
2: no where'd, where'd you go recently not too far you went down south didn't you didn't you go to memphis yeah i yeah. passed through memphis actually. yeah high roller was down there you should have gone and seen him
0: Passed through i was driving uh records down
2: <laughs> that's what so, it was i know yeah okay, there, i can remember it. that was, that, like-
0: was a, that was a great trip man that was awesome <laughs> but yeah no uh always happy to be your man this is an awesome episode
2: I think so. That's why we did the full two hours on this. We want to make sure that we didn't skip over anything to have people say like, "Oh, you're making it sound like it was so great, or it's so bad, or whatever." No, the truth's in the middle. It's ugly at times, you know. Yeah. But what are we going to do? Not tell the full story? It mm. Seems dumb. Seems disingenuine.
0: And that was the full story,
2: American Loser? That was. Uh, that was. Well, I, I, what, what's the topic here? Really, is it Margaret Mitchell? Is it Nathan Bedford Forrest? Or is it the the lost cause mythology?
0: The truth of the American Loser.
2: And that was Christian Cordes, American Loser. loser,
0: An American Loser, the day I was born. An American Loser, the day I was born. An American Loser, the day I was born.